0: W-A-P-G, Airline Pilot Guy.
1: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 301. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In this episode, a Let L-410 crash in Russia. Virgin and Egypt Air ding wings. American Air has some splaining to do. More news, your feedback, and the latest Tales installment, written in the blood of the innocent. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 301 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and uh, guess what? We talk about aviation here. I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, and joining me today... From the Carolinas, a beautiful little place on a lake in South Carolina, a doctor, a marathon runner, a skydiver, a uh, IPA connoisseur, and so much more. The lovely Doctor Stuff.
2: Hello. Did you mention pilot in there anywhere? Oh no! I can't remember. Wait a minute, I
1: forgot that part. <laughs> Commercial multi. See, I don't know if you saw me on the video. I was closing my eyes, trying to remember all the things I'm supposed to say. And there's so many things to say about you, Doctor Steph, that sometimes I neglect all, you know, one or two of them. So, the well, most I feel like that
2: might be the, the most important one, yes, yeah, for this for this I show guess. at least.
1: Okay, yeah, she's a pilot. So, what kind of this pilot one. are you? Oh, I have a commercial,
2: commercial multi-engine. That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all that good stuff. Yeah, commercial multi-engine instrument rating and seaplane rating. Right, seaplane. Yeah, I haven't used that in a long time, so not current with that. But
2: nice.
1: yeah, I'm um, impressed.
2: It's it's good stuff. It's all for you know my personal enjoyment mostly because i don't really use it a whole lot for the commercial side of things that i have but Mm um you know someday maybe we'll see
1: okay this whole doctor thing doesn't work out the whole doctor thing and if you get a little bored with that exactly all right well um let's see i guess we can introduce our next contestant on the airline pilot guy show
3: one thousand
1: he is a former RAF and RAAF, fighter pilot, professional photographer, currently a wide-body Airbus captain, Captain Nick Anderson. Uh, hi there, Jeff. Uh, and hi there, Steph. And
4: well, I know Dana's there somewhere. Uh, it's a delight to be back on the show again. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, and then you're in uh, to show to San say.
1: Francisco. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, you're, you're not over the pond or across the pond. You're across the continent from uh, Dana and Stephanie and I.
4: I am. Uh, I was positioned out here by my company yesterday uh, in order to enjoy 48 hours of uh, sunshine. And I'm currently in Fred's house because uh, we're going to get together for a meal tonight. So uh, I'm borrowing his office and uh, his internet while he's off working on yet another multimillion dollar um, deal so uh thanks very much indeed for that friend he may be able to join us later
1: okay well that would be a treat and uh, speaking of a treat we also have another apg crew member uh former regional jet captain and now captain for the majors acme airlines captain dana colton Oh hi. just uh, Dana here. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want. That's a great I'm not experience. no, it's not I don't, I don't
3: Oh, know. it's 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 okay. I'm I Oh, was, okay. Uh, there we uh, go. Now we hear you. Yeah. Bumped my uh, speaker my microphone here and it went off for some reason. So anyway, it's uh, great to be back once again. Back with the crew after a, a very exciting uh, last week, spending some time together. We'll talk about that a little later, I'm sure. But uh, a, another uh, fun episode ahead of us as as we choose to uh, discuss some of our favorite topics, which happen to be aviation, or not, or not. Yes. Yeah. Well. So um,
1: yeah, uh, the 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 big deal last weekend. Uh, we uh, a whole bunch of folks were able to join us live for the uh, episode 300. And, uh, we had a grand time over at Dana's house. Dana and Julie were wonderful hosts and, uh, Dana cooked up a storm and, uh, made some awesome barbecue and we drank a little bit of beer and stuff. And then, uh, we had, um, uh, whatever, a, uh, a, a recording and, uh, we had a lot of fun with the show.
2: I think it was an amazing time. I'm really so happy, um, that it all worked out so well. And thank you again to Dana and Julie. I know we've said, and I can't say it enough and I'll say it again, but they were amazing hosts. Um, The cooking was amazing. Uh, the food was so good, the barbecue. And uh, it just really all went off seamlessly. We had a great time. Lots of people came and, and uh, were able to meet up with us. So it's good to say hi to everyone in person. We don't get to do that very often. I know we kind of do the social media thing most of the time and that's how we all get to know each other. But uh, that doesn't really replace face-to-face meetings, getting to see people in person. So always a great time.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely endorse that. It was super to see you guys uh, in the flesh. Uh, not too much flesh, thank God. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we kept but, it to but, a minimum. Yes, and uh, I wouldn't mind if it was just Steph, but uh, you well, guys, I don't know about that. Hey, <laughs>
1: <that's> not fair.
4: <laughs> anyway, it was a brilliant time. Of course, I uh, spent uh, a couple of extra days uh, with Dana, and uh, we had a ball. He's, he's such a great host. Took me out uh, to all sorts of places, and uh, I even went and uh, to a favorite bar of his and watched uh, the Patriots marmalize some other poor bunch of guys. Um, and uh, I had to wear a Patriots shirt and a Patriots hat, uh, which he gifted to me, which was very nice. And I had oohah with everyone else when ever Patriots like walked ten yards. I don't know. Was everyone when very walked-
2: convinced that you uh, that you were a true Patriots fan? <laughs> oh and yeah, you-
4: was everyone watching? Oh, no. You're
2: very convinced that you were a Patriots diehard Patriots fan and that your, you know, appreciation for the team is absolutely you know, is
3: everybody's coming over, giving them high fives. Now, uh, now don't know. don't answer
1: this one, Dana. Uh, this okay, is a question well. for Captain Nick, just to see if he uh can get this right. So what is the name on your jersey? <laughs> name and number on your jersey. Aha. Uh-huh. Are you <laughs> hey, sorry, Jeff, you're breaking up. Uh huh. The,
4: the, yeah. player,
2: the player's name. Who's, who's name? Jersey,
4: whose jersey did you wear? Oh, It was uh, it was the uh, running back, uh, number 87, whose name <laughs> was starts with a G. That's <laughs> it. I just Ends said it. Ends with
2: a ski.
1: No. Come, come on. on. It wasn't that bad. Uh, it was Google Ski. You could just call him by his nickname. <laughs> just call him by his nickname. The, the, shortened, the shortened version. The, yeah. G-R-O, the G-R-O. The The groin. No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I think he's no longer in the game.
4: Gronkowski. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, the he kept catching Gronk. things. So that was yeah.
1: apparently good. Uh, I think he caught a cold as well. Who did? Who? Gronk? Uh, Gronk, whatever his name <laughs> okay.
0: was.
1: Well, that was interesting. I got—I had a chance to uh, meet up with uh, Dana and Julie and Captain Nick is well, Gronk, over there at the um, – at the North River Tavern as well on Sunday. That was a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. And then uh, we got to meet together, the three of us. Not Unfortunately, sadly, Steph had to go back to work. But uh, while Nick was still here the day that he ah, yes. was uh, traveling back home, um, they came over to my neck of the woods in Roswell, and we had lunch at a nice little seafood place. Not Captain D's. Uh, Hugo's Oyster yes. uh, Shack or oh, Oyster ice. something or other. But anyway,
4: and was I was it. the only one who ate good oysters because everyone else seemed to have stomach troubles after
1: that.
3: No, nah, I didn't have no. troubles until Wednesday, oh, and my right. Tuesday.
4: Yeah, well, those oysters don't move very <clears throat> fast, you know. No,
1: nah, we're, we're, it weren't the uh, oysters; it was something else, I think. So, uh, well, why don't well, we just go ahead and dive right into
3: that? Wait, uh, wait, Tom! I didn't even get to stay what I can about my weekend.
1: I'm I'm just about to ask da- you, Dana, how okay. everything's been when are going. But you about to move on. You got it. I'm moving
3: on to you. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you know, it was an incredibly. Hey, try, hey,
1: Dana, try that mic button again. See if that's working. That uh, cutout mic cutout button.
3: See, it works okay. just fine.
1: Yeah, I'll go ahead and just put it in the other position, and then we'll move right. on with uh, Doctor Steph. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <kidding>. Okay, Dana.
3: <laughs> how rude! Oh, no. Wow. It was a labor of love. Uh, we really enjoyed having uh, the entire APG community. Uh, Fred flew all the way in from uh, all the way in from uh, California, San Fran, um, and uh, we had. Uh, oh my God, I'm having a brain fart from uh, Missouri. Tom. Tom. Yeah. Tom Seagraves, yeah. Uh, Tom came in from Missouri, and then we had a lot of local people come in. Of course, Nick flew all the way from England. Doctor Steph came in uh, originally from Charlotte, but we were uh, Knoxville, I think it was. Correct. Jeff uh, came across the perimeter, which is uh, in Atlanta, is as dangerous as anything. Uh, so it it was uh, to have the 300 here was uh, truly an honor for Julie and I. We thoroughly enjoyed it. The food, uh, you know, it came out okay. As far as as far as it goes, I, I guess, because quite honestly, once I put that food out, I turned my back and I turned back my back ra- back around. It was all gone. So apparently everybody enjoyed it. Uh, but we had a fantastic uh, party here. It was kind of depressing for me on Sunday when everybody left because it was just such a good time. Um, it was uh, sad to see Nick go. Uh, Jeff, of course, and Steph left on, uh, on well, Jeff left saturday and then Steph left on sunday when we went to go watch the, the uh, football game but it was it was great to have everybody here everybody in person um and uh truly uh, our pleasure absolute pleasure anytime um we want to have a you know you want to have a get to a get together uh, certainly our house is uh, set up and we enjoy entertaining so appreciate the compliments and and everybody uh saying uh, we're great hosts we try to treat people just like the way we want to be treated so we had a great time with it so thank you thank you everybody yeah. for coming and thank enjoying you Dana. thank you and no, i was actually brilliant time so well 400 500 and 600 let's go <laughs> oh i don't even want to think about that right now actually <laughs> all right um, so we'll do, do it doing quarters then yeah 325 um uh, I don't need an excuse to throw a party. You know that. That's true. I think you know that. All right, we'll be at your house next week. Let's go. (laughs) Sounds good. 302. What what time will you be here? (laughs) All
1: right. Um, So uh, we mentioned um, our our lunch with the oysters on um, Monday. And then on Tuesday, uh, there was some mention, some hint from Captain Nick that uh, you may have had some kind of um, physiological issues. Dana, hello. As I said, Nick. No, okay. I said Nick was saying.
3: Oh, that. Nick was saying. Okay. Yes, uh, <clears throat> went to work on Tuesday and uh, did a little round trip to uh, where would I go? I went. Oh, I went down to Sarasota or Fort Myers. I can't, I can't even remember anymore. Yeah, it was Sarasota. I remember it. So uh, Sarasota came back and was a little hungry. You know, short leg up to Lexington. Thank God. Went over to uh, Terminal E to my favorite. Uh, I won't use the name of the place. Banda. Express, um, and got uh, what I normally get. I've been eating there for years. Got some uh, kung pao chicken and some steamed vegetables. And by the time I was on the van in Lexington, which is about an hour and probably an hour and forty minutes after I ate my uh, dinner, uh, I was looking for the door to potentially have to go put my head out of it and uh, do some uh, some uh, projectile something. Uh, on the way to the hotel. Fortunately, I made it to the hotel, but that's where it began. It was a, uh, a, a unfriendly evening, the entire evening. Uh, I'll just say both ends. That's all we need to talk about. So but it was, perhaps uh, we could just say you had some food poisoning? I would have to say I had every symptom of salmonella. My stomach was so tender that even if I like put my hand on it, I was in agony. And uh, This entire week, I actually made it through work, believe it or not. Um, I had a long enough overnight, 18 hours where I had enough time to recover at least somewhat did my recurrent training, which I know you had to do there, Captain Jeff. So once I went through that and figured out that my brain was sharp enough to get through all that, uh, you know, I, I, couldn't go out and run a marathon. I probably even couldn't walk around the block very far, but, uh, my mind was sharp and I was, I felt that I was, I was fully competent and improved to to be so to go out and fly so by that afternoon i was feeling a little better uh, still hadn't had anything to eat until that following uh, night i had a bowl of soup came uh, came and uh, landed and my next uh, my next overnight well i can never remember where it was it was a short overnight doesn't so it doesn't matter, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter and then uh, next morning I had a very small bite and uh, started feeling better again and then relapsed this morning so, um, and then I'm fighting bronchitis on top of it all. So you can imagine that month, that Tuesday night, you know, everything going on, and then coughing on top of it all, my chest really hurts. So it was a rough week at work, and uh, yeah, the food the food issue it was uh, was certainly the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my entire career.
1: Well, I had a little uh, I had a little touch of food poisoning as well, and uh, I don't know if it was from the uh... Bojangles uh, biscuit, uh, the uh, country ham and egg biscuit that I had in the morning of uh, Wednesday, Bojangles. very early. Uh, or if it was the uh, red beans and rice at uh, a nice little, small, quaint little restaurant in uh, Springfield, Mass, uh, where I had, uh, uh, did I just say that? Red beans and rice? Yeah. Yes. At uh, Chef uh, Wayne's Big That's <laughs> Kind of a cool place. And, uh, but anyway, and then I stopped and had a cup of uh, coffee on the way back to the hotel got back to the hotel and thinking, I'm not really feeling great. And, uh, so I went to bed and then I had the same symptoms that, uh, Dana was uh, talking about. I had a bout of something and, uh, it sounds to me kind of like a classic salmonella poisoning. Um, but, uh, anyway, it was a rough night as well. Hadn't, hadn't experienced that. Uh, in quite some time and uh, makes you appreciate it when you're feeling well.
3: And and it doesn't, and, and none of this has anything in common with my cooking because I didn't really get to eat any of it and neither one of uh, Nick or uh, Steph got sick either. Yeah, they so, might have no,
2: cast no, no, iron stomachs. Well, yeah, I <laughs> could
3: pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, salmonella affects you within 24 hours, for sure sure, considering it was Wednesday before you felt it, Yeah, not me.
2: Yeah, so, no, it had nothing to do with uh, – uh, certainly nothing to do with
3: – Oh, certainly just not. just a coincidence no, no. that
2: you and Jeff both happened to eat at right. different
3: places. No, at different no, parts no of food. For
2: similar face, So, yeah.
3: and, and, of course, I mean, I'm sure Dr. Seth noticed. Well, maybe she may not have, but I probably use more gloves than a surgeon does in, in a month when I cook oh, yeah. one day. So it's uh, always changing gloves. I'm, I'm actually very cautious. Very
2: sanitary that. operation going on in Dana's kitchen. Yeah,
3: absolutely. 100%. So. Nick, you were trying to
4: say something? Oh, I was just saying no food that uh, tastes that good, uh, Dana, could uh, possibly give you any problems. So uh, I'm completely confident that your cooking was
1: fantastic. Yeah, had nothing to do with your Thank food you. at all. Um, Thank you. So, you know, and I'm kind of surprised, actually, uh, the the life that we lead as airline pilots and uh, tra- doing as much traveling as we do. And, and you know, we, we don't cook our own meals when we're out on the uh, – on our trips. Uh, we were, you know, we're at restaurants and fast food joints and all these different places trying to eat as healthy as we can. And, uh, it's really amazing to me that we don't get food poisoning more than we do actually. But yeah, you guys, um,
2: you know, you both work for me. Did they, were they serving fish this week?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. That deserves that. Yeah. I had the fish. Did you have the fish, Dana?
3: Yeah, I, uh, I noticed I noticed every every flight I was on I had a meal. Yeah. No, so
1: I, somebody said something about Acme crew meals. Uh there is <laughs> on the on the fleet that Dana and I fly very rarely do you um ever have any kind of a meal uh just of the longer it, legs on for the first class
3: people. And are, it's getting less and less chef because everybody's allergic to it peanuts so you know that we don't have Nope, Dana's gone. All right.
1: But Fill in the blank, and uh, you can you can kind of use your imagination what he was going to say.
4: Yeah, but, but it, it is a, uh, a problem back. with our job, uh, though, yes. isn't it, Jeff? Because we go through so many different places, so many different time zones. I'm eating at very odd times of the day uh, when my uh, digestive system isn't really very interested. And I have a kind of a almost continual low-level um, irritation. Uh, of the digestive system that, uh, I hopefully will get over once, <laughs> once I retire.
1: Oh, that's uh you know, it's the oddest thing when after this whole, I went through this whole bout and then the next day, um, trying or yesterday thinking I'm not hungry. Nothing sounds good to me. I had to force myself. I went back to the room. Oh, by the way, Dana, that, uh, QCQ, that quarterly, uh, current recurrent training, it's not due until December 30th or 31st. So even though oh, it's no, that,
3: if you, if you if you look at your your uh, your I crew, it, it actually says due by November 30th. I
1: know that's that's says November 30th, but right. But
3: on in, in the in the uh, in the training, I I saw that it said December 31st. I think right. Well, I
1: took that one uh, as the uh, as the gospel, and I and because I was in no mood to uh, finish it up uh, yesterday, and I just basically slept all afternoon, forced myself to get up, have some soup and then uh, went back to sleep so
3: that anyway. was probably the longest cq i've CQ i've ever seen or done
1: let's see um let's move on um yeah so we're here we're doing 301 it's good to be back on track for the uh, regular style shows steph we didn't really hear about uh, what's been going on with you have you uh, was it fun getting right on back into the grind at uh, at your work Yay. yay i love
2: going right back to work on a monday morning <laughs> right after a holiday when we've been off for four days and uh coming up to the end of the year and i've mentioned before it's really busy for us this time of year so oh okay hello oh. yes that was oh. um oh, that taco. was a no no that was not taco. that was greta <laughs> that was the the dachshund yes oh um but anyway, yeah, I no, Monday was very busy. Um, Tuesday I actually got my FA medical done. So that was good. I try and keep my second class just in case I end up doing something somewhere along the line with my commercial certificate. If there's an opportunity, I just want to be able to do that and not worry about having to go and get a medical. So no big reason. No big no big deal there. No reason not to do it, just once a year. So did that. That was a nice little break from work after having a break from work. And then um yeah, just been working straight through the rest of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I would like to go flying at some point. I think this weekend's gonna be nice, so maybe I sh- shall will go do that.
1: Oh good. Well yeah. then you can tell us about it the next on the next show. Exactly.
3: So. All right. Perfect.
1: Excellent. Hey, I got something last minute uh, from one of our APG crew or not, APG community members, First Officer Craig. Uh, he sent in a piece of audio feedback for me to play. He said it's time sensitive, time critical. And so, uh, you want to listen to that? Yes, please. Let's do that.
3: Let's do it.
5: Hello, AvGeeks. This is F.O. Craig here, currently standing in a grocery store parking lot waiting for my sister to come bring a spare key for my car since I uh, stupidly locked my keys in the car. So, I figure what better time than to uh, send some feedback in while I'm staying in the freezing cold out here. It's about mid-30s. Yeah. Maybe low 40 degrees Fahrenheit with some wind blowing, so you might hear that too. But anyway, uh, I'm surprising my fiance Ashley with a trip to London to go see the Harry Potter and Cursed Child play at the Palace Theater. We are arriving on the morning of the 17th of December and leaving the morning of the 20th of December, but uh, I've been in talks with Nev about getting a meetup going while we're over there, and on Monday, the 18th of December, 2018, at 6.30 p.m., we are planning a meetup at a Browns Restaurant Covent Garden location, so if there's any Londoners or uh, any uh, Av Geeks in the community that are are going to be in london around that time and uh, want to come meet myself if i haven't already met you my fiance ashley and uh nev for some good food beer uh drinks and uh just camaraderie and fun and please uh reach out to myself at craig uh or fo craig on twitter you can reach out to nev uh also craig paisic on facebook uh just try not to be uh try to be discreet, my fiance does doesn't quite know where we're going or what we're doing yet so, uh, till we uh, get to the airport to leave for London, so I'd like to keep that a secret as long as I can it's already been hard enough, but at that all you know, I'm sure you're all gonna just spill the beans and to Ashley but yeah whatever we'll make fun and uh, have fun while we're there and uh, yeah so uh, again if anybody's interested uh, feel free to reach out and uh, we'll have some fun thanks take care bye
1: it's a good thing she doesn't listen to the show
2: <laughs> he's clearly confident that she does not listen yes. to either show or yeah. playing talking UK I should mention because he they played it there as well because ah. that's
1: their uh
4: well, I mean, that makes
1: sense. She's a, she's a very sensible lady. A long-suffering yeah. spouse. Well, not, she's not even a long-suffering, and she's not a spouse yet. Well, soon. She but, will be. Uh, yeah, she's practicing for it. <laughs> oh, excellent. Sounds like you're gonna, it's going to be a fun time, and that's a kind of a great surprise uh, for uh, Ashley.
4: Oh, absolutely. And I'm already going to have to pass my apologies because I will be in the middle of a two-night Washington um, so I'll be in the Udvahazy, is that what it's called? Hoover-
0: uh,
4: Udvahazy. uh Center, Museum, uh, Aerospace Place. So I'll be having fun, but I really would much rather be uh, at a meetup in London. That would be very cool.
1: Awesome. All right. But I'm sorry. I won't be there. Oh, that's sad. It's, sad.
0: it's so sad. With the
1: and it's you know, i got to play these every once in a while. Because they yeah, kind of get know, dusty. Yes. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, in the chat room, uh, Liz was saying something about me at my and, and uh, Dana's uh, little bout of uh, poisoning. And she said, oh, maybe they
3: were... <laughs> we're going green. <laughs> they were going green. We're going well, green. Yeah to <laughs> take care of oh, don't please stop in. that <laughs>
2: <laughs> gives yeah, new meaning yeah. to the song doesn't it, it
1: really oh does oh my
0: god <laughs> good
1: hey you know uh speaking of um of sound effects and, and, uh, and podcasts and shows and such. Uh, I was uh, listening to, uh, you, may, many of you know, I, I like listening to other podcasts, uh, a lot of tech podcasts I listen to. And my, one of my favorites uh, is Leo Laporte. He has uh, the Tech Guy show. It's actually a, a syndicated radio show. That uh, goes out for, I don't know how, what, how big the audience is, but it's pretty huge. It's coast to coast, may actually be out outside of the U, uh, U.S. And uh, Micah uh, likes to listen to Leo as well. And in fact, a lot of times, those of us who know Micah personally will hear Micah, and they call him Mike on the show. Uh, he'll call in with some kind of a question, and I, I, I don't think that he really wants help. I think he just wants to call into the show and, and uh, you know be contribute to the show. But uh, uh, it's, it's always a, a treat, I can tell, when uh, Leo Laporte gets a call from Micah. Anyway, I was listening to the show uh, last weekend, and uh, it's on Saturdays and Sundays, three hours each. And uh, during the end of one of the call periods, uh, this gentleman was on and uh, talking to Leo and having this little discussion. And I, I was kind of surprised, actually. So I'm thrilled that you listen, Brian. I will fix it for you, I promise
4: if it were possible, I'd like to thank another one of your listeners who got me through when I couldn't listen to the tech guy. I, what are you, you your other callers? A guy by the name
6: of Micah out of Portland, Maine? Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he told me about another podcast that's out there. Yeah, don't. Oh, he told you about somebody else's show?
4: Well, when, when he was talking to you, <laughs> the, the.
6: Oh, yeah, he does a show uh, about the, the
1: airplane guys, right?
6: A, 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 a Airline pilot guy.
1: Yeah. Isn't that a great show? That's Micah's show, yeah. Excuse me? Isn't that a great show? That's Micah's show, yeah.
5: That is his show? Yeah. Yeah, because I know he's mentioned on it a lot.
1: Yeah, he's a gr- he's a great guy. You know, there's a whole world out there, Brian. I hate to say this. I think you should only listen to my shows. But
6: <laughs> well, when I can't get yours, I got to
1: Yeah, there are hundreds of thousands of shows out there. Just try stuff and see what you get. Brian, if you're listening to me right now, the airline pilot guy, it's not Micah's show. <laughs> I thought it was funny. In fact, uh, Mike sent me a text and uh, told me about it, and uh, I thought, "Oh, I gotta get, I gotta get the recording of that and play it on the show."
2: That's great. <laughs> Although uh, Leo Laporte had some very sensible advice, just listen to his show. Yeah, it's it's very professional, and well, it great. is. And yeah, I know, yeah, and uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I thought that was funny, but it's <laughs> it, it's. Uh, I guess Leo's got a lot of things to think about, and uh, I don't think he always can, you know continuously listens to people's, what, what people are saying. Um, you know, I'm sure that, uh, there are a lot of responsibilities and such, but anyway, Micah, I see he's in the chat room with us live. Um, that was cool. It's always uh, fun to hear your voice. Uh, usually it's, I'm, I'm out mowing the lawn or something like that, listening to the show live on the weekend. And all of a sudden uh, they say, there's Mike from Portland. And I went, Oh, I know who this is. <laughs> anyway, it's always a good, uh, good to hear Micah.
2: Hey, any publicity, we'll take it really. That's right.
1: right? Yeah, you heard really? Airline Pilot Guy show on yeah, a yeah. very large syndicated radio program, so that was kind of cool. Johnny, how much more coffee?
0: No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the, I love the job APG you come in,
1: last me. Tea. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup a cup a cup a cup a cup. Oh yeah. Hey, the coffee fund, the Java Jive. We're talking about coffee here because I love coffee. I you know, like tea too. But the coffee fund is there for you to become um, take ownership in the show and become a producer. And you can do that by heading over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. And there you'll find a couple of different ways that you can participate in the Coffee Fund and become part of the Coffee Fund cadre. And the first way is the Classic Method. And we have Steve Trumbull, uh, again, giving us a recurring donation on the Classic Method, which is uh, via PayPal. And let's see, Patreon is the other way to do it. That's patreon.com slash guy. Just go to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, and then you'll find out how you can Get to there, and what that is is you can become a um, a patron of the show, and you can decide to give a certain amount per episode. And several folks have done that, and we do appreciate their generous donations. And we have some new patrons since the last episode, since episode three hundred actually. Uh, let's see. Let's start with Robert Thompson who was at the uh, celebration, by the way. Stuart Aslett, he was the one responsible for us going over to Farnborough last year. And Christy Baus, I think I think um, Jordan uh, Baus, I think they're related. Uh, so Christy, welcome. Thank you for becoming a patron of the show. And Vaughn Turney. So we have four new producers, part of the Coffee Fund cadre. So thank you one and all for joining us. And again as we always like to say if you need your money for let's say food clothing shelter flying lessons please don't give any money to us you need to spend it on what's important but if you have some extra change lying around we're more than happy to accept it
7: Stand by for news.
1: All right, let's start with some downers. You know, the last show, the episode 300, we decided we were going to keep everything light and upbeat. Uh, this was in the news folder, though, and now we're going to talk about it. This was a uh, Khabarov, Khabarov, Khabarovsk, carbo <laughs> do you nailed it? it. <laughs> nailed no, Thank you. L410 at Nelkan on November 15th. Uh, it impacted the ground short of the runway. The right propeller went into reverse in flight. Uh, it was a LET or Let L four ten, performing flight four sixty three from a city that starts with a K in Russia to one that's uh, Nikolayevsk on Amur. <laughs> with five, it. yeah, thank you, five passengers and two crew. I appreciate it. Stuff uh, could not land at the N O A due to weather. Continued to their alternate aerodrome Indiga, but also could not land there to, due to weather. The aircraft thus diverted to their Next scheduled destination, NELCAN, and the aircraft was on final approach to NELCAN uh, at 1309 local when the aircraft contacted trees about two kilometers short of the runway and crashed into a forest. A three-year-old girl survived the crash with serious injuries. The crew and other passengers perished. Uh, The airport Reported the aircraft was on final approach coming into land in good weather conditions. No rain, good visibility, no gusts, winds below 10 knots, temperature minus 25 degrees centigrade. When the aircraft's right wing suddenly dropped, the aircraft lost height, fell into a forest. There was no explosion and no fire. Local officials reported the surviving girl has been taken to a hospital where she didn't talk but made eye contact. She was diagnosed with complex fractures requiring surgery. Uh, the Far Eastern Transport Investigation Committee, part of the Far Eastern Prosecution Office, reported that they have opened a criminal investigation into the crash. And uh, I don't know, that might be a standard thing for them over there. And on November 21st, uh, Rosa, Rosa Aviazia reported that the captain, uh, who was 42 years old, 12,076 hours total, was assisted by first officer, 30 years old. 1,220 hours total. Um, Let's see. According to a preliminary information, the aircraft was descending between 150 and 140 meters, which is about 500 to 460 feet AGL on landing course 041 degrees. When the aircraft rolled right and entered a steep descent, the aircraft impacted the ground with almost no forward speed and a high vertical speed. The distance from first ground contact to final position was 3 meters, 10 feet. Preliminary readout of the data of the black boxes suggest that the right-hand propeller went into beta reverse at 150 meters and remained in that position until impact with the ground. The left-hand engine continued to operate normally. The crew recognized, according to this report, the crew recognized the right-hand propeller had gone into beta mode. The right-hand beta mode, as well as the crew actions, caused the aircraft to slow, roll, yaw right, almost 180 degrees. The aircraft came... To arrest at a heading of 197 degrees. Blah 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 blah. Let's see. Immediately uh, or immediate safety recommendations were released to all L410 operators to perform a one-time examination of the beta and propeller control system on the GE H80-200 engines, as well as all L410 flight crew review the relevant sections of the aircraft operating manual quote propeller and control. And checklists on engine failures in flight. So it kind of sounds to me, reading between the lines here, that yes, the uh, the propeller went into reverse, which was what which it was not supposed to do. But then it also sounds to me that they were indicating that the crew didn't do something right, or they they did something wrong, uh, and contributed to this crash. And I have never flown a um, turboprop airplane. I know you have experience with that, Dana, right? Yes, I sure do. So, uh, is that so? What happens when you're you're flying along, you're close to the ground, and the uh, one of the propellers goes into beta or re- reverse? Uh, is, is there like a, a standard thing that you do, like immediately, to uh, you know, kind of rectify the situation?
3: Uh, well, you get, of course, there are uh, um, QRH procedures to, and to deal with it, but uh, you Know, media action, I would to to bring the uh, probably if I can remember this now going back a lot of years, yeah. I mean, you don't have to do uh, the exact
1: with, you know, just a, yeah. like in general, what you know, would you yeah, pull
3: in it in? To- you bring the power back to idle and uh, try to uh, it, on the Brasilia, we had a, a, an override which was the prop governor on it and you could hit that. and I don't remember specifically terminology on it but you could try to uh, feather it back into into a, a you know, feathered position um but if you're that close to the ground like it sounds like these guys were uh, if you don't react pretty quickly it's it's basically th- like throwing a barn door out there mm-hmm. uh, and it's going to pull the airplane right into the ground if you if you don't have time to react you know right let's say 2,000 feet or less or 3,000 feet or less mm-hmm. you, you don't have a whole lot of time
4: so, so this would have to be a memory action, would it, Dana?
3: Yes, it would be. And yeah, it was so. on the Brasilia. Um and and, it's a media action you'd have item.
4: To act, you'd have to act very fast because when you're down at approach speed, you don't have much of a margin uh, between that and your stalling speed. So unless you uh, got that engine powered back and got the other engine up, you were pretty much uh, cooked.
3: Yes, yes. It, and it would be just like you know, you and I, Jeff, if we if imagine uh, you know, accidentally putting one of our uh, reverses into – into reverse in flight, it would be the same idea. I mean it just it would just pull the airplane right out of the sky mm-hmm. uh, rapidly not I mean not pull it out of the sky immediately, but it would pull it out of the sky rapidly depending yeah, I, on, on the configuration speed as uh, as Nick mentioned.
1: I would imagine it would be much more critical for um, a propeller uh, airplane, but I don't know i'm I'm not uh, flown as I said. I uh, don't have much experience in propeller airplanes, but
4: it's a pretty rare occurrence, isn't it? Because there must be a lot, a bit like our engines, uh, jet engines going into reverse in the air. There are a lot of interlocks and things to prevent exactly this happening, yeah?
3: Yeah, there are several um, interlocks, but not as many as there are in a jet engine. Um, you know, hydraulically controlled. It, it is controlled in the in the prop, in the prop governor, just like it is isn't in any prop that uh, Steph... Would yep. be familiar with, and yeah. very similar, um, and but it's it's not a fail safe system. That, that was one of the one of the causes of a uh, of a ASA crash. Um, and, two of them uh, actually. It, yeah, two. Of them, well, no, one was the prop failed. Oh, okay. It had a crack in it. That was the one down in uh, I think it was Brunswick. Yeah, Brunswick. Yeah, and then the one that was out on uh, Conyers or um, something or in uh, Covington. Uh, okay. No. Covington or, or just West Atlanta, I think that one was the one that had the prop governor problem. But uh, it, it's a known problem with turboprops. However, it being that said, uh, it's a very rare occurrence. And certainly we're trained just like at any other uh, airline or any other professional uh, organization to, to have your immediate action items in, in have memorized that if something like this would happen, that you'd be able to react quick enough and fly a single engine. I mean, every aircraft I've ever flown is a turboprop uh, was uh, single, you know, single engine was, was not that difficult to handle. As long as you get that prop uh, into a feathered mode where it's not act out there acting like a big old uh, br- uh, break out there.
2: Yeah. I mean, this just sounds like, you know, combination of things all happening at the, worst possible moment so like you said on approach low airspeed not a lot of altitude for recovery and it just i, I imagine there was very little time even if you acted immediately to salvage this situation
3: so. you know I, I will i will tell you this when i was flying parachute jumpers i was flying a platys porter huh. and for anybody that know, don't does not know what platys porter is a short takeoff lane, high wing high high wing airplane and if you you know, a lot of av- geeks something I'm sure I've seen the movie Air America when the uh, there's an airplane that lands on the side of a mountain, that's a a Pilatus porter. You could also put pull it up on the internet. Uh and we used to fly and, and, and throw jumpers out at, you know, fourteen thousand feet and
2: spoiler alert pe- for some uh feedback coming up in the feedback folder anyway, but go
3: ahead. Oh, is there?
2: Yeah,
1: no, actually, okay. uh, it's um, in the news folder
3: stuff.
2: Oh, it's in the news folder. Oh, okay, uh-huh. sorry. my bad. Anyway, I'm it was, sorry. It was in both places actually, but okay. uh, yeah,
3: should again. I stop then?
2: No, 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 no. no just go ahead. Sorry.
3: Okay. Well, so anyways, uh, the Porter we would, you know, the PT six, which is a very good uh, turbo prop engine, we would actually pull the uh, gate on the um, on the uh, the beta and beat the jumpers down to the ground. So, we would, you know, base to final was at about 9,000 feet. Yep. Uh, so, that aircraft comes down, you know, when you go into beta, and that just gives you an idea, base to final at an airport, you know, flying power is we're already on kind of on the edge, when, you know, flying. Uh, you you pull the engine to beta, and I'm making base to final, and I'm landing uh, from 9,000 feet. I'm coming down at an extreme rate. So, and that was just slightly into beta. That's not even full beta. That's just pulling it over the gate so it it really has and that's a single engine the uh the uh, platys porter is a single engine you know a turbo prop um so if you if you lose that engine yeah okay it, it, it you're coming down at a great rate you may not even make the runway of turning base to final on 8000 feet so um all right gives you an idea very interesting okay well
1: uh, kind of Steph was hinting at something that we were going to talk about in the show. And why, why not just talk about it right now? Um, this was sent in by several of our community members. Um, wing suit daredevils, you know, those, uh, the skydivers that wear the wing suits and they become like air flying airfoils, like human <laughs> airfoils.
2: This isn't actually what I was hinting at. But oh, you weren't? Okay. Was, no, oh, no, no, no. There, i There's additional things coming up later.
1: So. Oh, okay. Excellent. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Stay tuned. Okay. I was, I was thinking you were you. You're pointing me in this direction. Anyway, uh, this uh, was a uh, on abcnews.go.com, a video of two wingsuit daredevils make midair landing inside of a plane. And they uh you got to watch this video i'm sure that many of you have already seen it and we'll put a link to it in the show notes and uh a couple of uh jumpers in their in their um wing suits jump out of and i think it's isn't the uh, stuff i'm sure you've seen the video have uh is that a porter as well
2: uh, you it's know a what? high
1: wing, and it's got a long nose. And it looks like a turboprop.
2: Um, off the top of my head, I actually don't remember. But okay, I think so that's what, what
1: I, I thought you were talking about. Um, have you
2: watched the video, Dana?
3: I have not. Okay. Oh. Anyway, it, they do. I was. Cur- I was. I was in my room, barely able to do anything else other than spend time in the bathroom. No, yeah, we get
2: videos. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I will verify it real quick, but I'm not okay. sure
1: off the top of my head. Um, Gustavo in the chat room says he thinks it's a Porter. Anyway, uh, these two daredevils, as the uh, article says, uh, they, they go out there and they're flying along with this airplane and uh, the airplanes in, in quite a steep descent. And uh, because obviously these wingsuit uh, jumpers, obviously, are, are not uh, in level flight. They're, they're you know, it looks like they're flying, but they're actually gliding at a very high rate. And uh, at, at some point in the video, they actually go back into the open door, uh, the right-hand open door of this airplane. And uh, so they, they don't go all the way to the ground. They actually get back in the airplane that they left uh, in flight, which is a pretty amazing thing, I guess.
4: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know about... Uh, how much risks you feel is suitable to take when you're doing um, this kind of thing. But uh, they are cracking along at some pace, and that bloke enters the aircraft (laughs) at a considerable rate. I think if there hadn't been a door, uh, or if there'd been a door on the other side, he'd gone straight through it on the other side again. I mean, the bloke that was trying to grab hold of him, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, So I don't know. If you crack your head on the door frame and don't get in, uh, what was that I guess they got helmets on. So yeah, they
2: have helmets. I, but here, so here's the thing: yeah. you know, they're still trying to match their airspeed with the airspeed of the aircraft, so their relative speed, even though they're moving at a high rate of speed, is not as much. So that's really what matters in terms of you know collisions in the air, especially when you're.
4: Yeah, uh, it just didn't seem like they were forming very stably. Uh, they were well, sort of yeah. sliding in. They were coming in at. Uh, what I consider to be a hell of pretty, a lick, yeah, pretty
1: pretty yeah. high rate. I think.
2: And, and did you yeah. see the um, the? Uh, there was at least one outtake in one of the videos where I'm sure they tried this many times before it was actually successful to get it just right. So they knew how to time the plane with the wingsuit jumpers and everything else. Yeah. And there were uh, there is footage of of the misses. The uh, oh, that one didn't go quite right. Where uh, it doesn't get in the door, uh, and yeah.
4: So and that door's uh, like eight feet from a. It,
2: um, it is a blender. Um, it is a plot is Porter. I went back and just looked oh, okay. the
1: video real quick just to I look at so. yeah. So that's what I thought
3: you. Were I looked at about. It, I looked at it real quick too. Yeah, I don't know is, if you heard me, but uh, it is a sorry. Porter. Yeah. Okay, absolutely yeah. interesting. Yeah. So anyways.
4: there's this there's this parachute blender just about eight feet away from the door that if yeah. they get it a bit wrong they're gonna. Have to yeah, do I mean this is well.
2: this is not something that you know the vast majority of any skydivers or wingsuiters are going to go out and attempt. These are. Are folks who have a lot of experience, and um, I think they're part of the Red Bull um, folks who who do a lot of these stunts and things too. So, um, yeah, they're as certainly, if you want to use the word professional wingsuiters, these are people who are doing this and getting paid for it, and um, it's not for the everyday skydiver wingsuit jumper. So, you know, so you don't
1: start off by like doing that, right?
2: No, 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 not at all.
4: <laughs> now, How long before they do this without wearing a parachute? Just the wingsuit? I, you know. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> I
2: hope not. That's just not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> no one, no one actually sane would do that. so I don't think so. Yeah. Never say never, but I can't imagine.
1: So you haven't already seen this uh, video. You need to check it out again. It'll be in the show notes. AirlinePilotGuy.com slash... Whatever the episode name is, three hundred one. Uh, let's see. Here's a here's an interesting one, um, a, involving a Virgin Atlantic uh, flight and an Egypt Air flight, and this just happened a few days ago. Let's uh, take a listen to this.
5: Virgin Fort Charlie Heavy Thirty Two, caution turbulence. Like Family four left, full length, five to
1: four eight. Okay, before. Uh, I'm going to start that over. I should probably set this up a little bit. I uh, uh, This is the ATC audio from liveatc.net. And uh, it starts off with both of these flights getting instructions to leave the ramp area, taxi instructions going out to the runway, crossing runways, etc. And as Virgin, uh, basically the number one in line, Virgin for Charlie, um, was getting close to the uh, end of the runway for takeoff, then the John F. Kennedy tower controller tells them this.
0: Virgin 4 Charlie Heavy, 30
1: cow, constantly turbulent, from a like four left, four length, line of four ways. Uh,
4: Virgin 4 Charlie, uh, Roger, we've got a technical issue at the moment, but it looks like we're just enough to do some driving Virgin 4 Charlie Heavy, all right, disregard all that, pull off to the right, all the way to the
1: right as far as you can on the run-up pad.
4: Okay, off to the right on the run-up pad, of
0: Virgin 4 Charlie, Roger. Egypt yeah. Ben 96 heavy, you're going to be next. Runway 4 left, lot of 4 ways. Virgin 4 Charlie, I think you should, uh, set, we? Uh, Egypt 6 left, can we? Alright, Egypt Ben 96, hold position.
4: Yeah. Thank you, I'm 32. We can't confirm you, you can have set the left hand wing for the
1: Virgin. Alright, all the right, Virgin 4 Charlie. Uh, for each of the 96 and Virgin 4, trial, just going to get a vehicle out there and see uh, if there's any maneuvering available over there, uh, and we'll start from there. Yeah, 12 position. There, we're going to get a vehicle out there see if there's any maneuvering available. Uh, see what we could do here to get everything going.
5: red 2, do you have access to Kilo 2 at all?
4: Uh, negative.
5: Potential huh? emergency
1: vehicles. Respond. Alert 1. Runway 4 left. And, uh, and Omar, these, uh respond, uh, alert one, runway pull up the kilo and kilo
4: one.
1: Anyway, it goes on. Um, and so what happens is that because of this technical issue that, uh, the Virgin flight had, uh, Tower told them to pull off to the side in the run up area. So it's a widening of the taxiway toward the end of the runway. And these are big airplanes. I think this is an Airbus 330. And, Uh, The uh, Egypt air flight uh, was a triple seven. So two very large twin engine airplanes with very, you know, long or wide wingspans. And um, apparently Egypt air thought they had clearance on the Virgin aircraft and ended up hitting the uh, right, their right wingtip against the Virgin left wing tip winglet. And uh, I guess there wasn't major, major damage as far as, you know, fuel leaks or any kind of a uh, uh, catastrophic damage. But uh, obviously this is not going to be a cheap thing to fix. And it ended up canceling, of course, both of the flights and they both had to make their way back to the uh, ramps and uh, take care of the situation. Um, what do, you, do, do you know anything about, uh, well, I know that you don't fly for them, but uh, uh, Nick, do you know anything? Do you have any friends that fly for uh, virgin that might know something about this?
4: Yes, I do, of course. Uh, Acme Red do a similar sort of job to to Virgin. So, uh, yeah, I could have kept my head to the ground, but I don't know any really specific details uh, other than uh, really we told. They pulled away to one side. um, They were hit from behind. uh, A bit of a uh, sucker's punch, if you ask me. Uh, Typical Boeing trick. Um, (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Wow.
2: had to work really there.
4: <laughs> really <laughs>
1: that's
2: wow. what the issue is this, this yeah. is well, this is a new low i think airbus okay see, see,
4: anyway you can get ahead you know got to hit you from behind mm. um okay. uh, that that uh, i don't know that run-up area very well you guys go in there more often than i do i don't even know if there's uh, a a line marking Uh, A proper centerline marking uh, for wide bodies to to use or whether it's just a big expanse of concrete because if there's no specific markings to uh, ensure wingtip clearance and you're just pulling off into a a sort of a a area of uh, unmarked concrete you're never absolutely certain where to stick your aircraft so Uh, It looks to me like the Virgin might not have pulled quite far enough over, but having said that, without a a line to follow, you never want to go too close to the edge because – you know, the 330 doesn't have, um, cameras to monitor your gear position, uh, on the taxiway like the 340 does. Um, so you're never absolutely certain of where your main bogus are. And the last thing you want to do is drop it off the uh, edge of the taxiway. So you're taking a little bit of care there. Uh, but after that, your head's down, uh, trying to solve the problem. So, um, uh, it was really up to the triple seven to make sure he had clearance. And if he couldn't see if he wasn't absolutely certain then he should have stopped and asked for marshallers to make sure that he could get by.
1: Yeah. Regardless of the aircraft manufacturer uh, in this case, this is more of a human um, thing. And uh, as Nick said, uh, you know, you, even if you have lines that are supposedly set up to uh, guarantee uh, with air quotes, uh, you know, wingtip clearance, the you're always responsible as a pilot in command to make sure that when you're taxing that airplane, that it is clear. And I don't care if you're on the center line yourself and you're supposed to have clearance It's supposed to be guaranteed. If you sense that it's not enough clearance, then you're responsible for making sure that you do have clearance before you uh, proceed. In my opinion, this was not the fault of the Virgin crew because they had pulled off to the side. Maybe they didn't pull off. Far enough, But it doesn't matter. They pulled off to the side. If the Egypt air crew thought that there wasn't enough room, then they should have stopped and said, you know what, we don't think there's enough room. Or maybe they could have swung a little bit more to the left to avoid, you know, to give them a little bit more clearance. Um, Whatever. You know, there's no reason to uh, continue and just, you know, cross your fingers and hope that it's going to be enough clearance. So. That was definitely yeah. pilot error on the on the uh, whoever was taxiing the the uh, Egypt Air airplane.
4: Yeah, first off, Mike uh, in the chat room, who uh, is a little more familiar, he says there's definitely a no center line in the run up. Yeah, I don't area, think there is. is. I don't recall just anything. Just lump of concrete. Yeah, and of course we all have sympathy because uh, we have got uh, a wingtip that we can't see. Uh, and uh, you're trying to protect uh, yourself against another wingtip that you can't see either, because when you're actually passing wingtip to wingtip, uh, the pilots can't see either the wingtip they're going to hit or their own wingtip. So you're really doing it by judgment. And it's not like we get a lot of training in exactly how narrow a gap you can fit these aircraft through. We do tend to rely on air traffic positioning uh their lines at a reasonable place, or just having a general feeling of, ooh, uh, I've, I've got through a gap this small before, perhaps, I don't know, is it a little tighter this time? I don't know. And of course, you could always just do what Heathrow do, which is they put out a general caveat in their 80s, oh, thank you very much, more stuff in the 80s, which says, Wingtip clearance is not assured, uh, and that's mm. obviously useless to anyone because it's never assured, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so, just
4: a CYA, know, um, um, yeah. oh, great. That's just, that's, uh, that's just a clause to get the airport out of, uh, yeah, CYA, um, the lawyer, yeah, it. exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it, it, we have clues, uh, that we we're, were given when you check out on a new airplane, like. You know the the standard width of the a slab of concrete is a I don't know what the actual measurement is, but on the airplane that Dana and I fly, they basically say two of the of those widths is approximately your wingspan on either side. So you have some kind of a general idea of where the wingtip is out there. But as it is in your airplane, unless we actually open up the window, we can actually open the window and stick our head out, I guess, to actually see the wingtip. But it's you know that wing's pretty far back on the uh, eighty eight and nineties. And uh, so you have to have some kind of an idea. And then uh, I, I was just thinking about um, uh, one of the places that we park, one of our um, terminals or concourses in Detroit. Uh, it gets really, really tight. Uh, they have a couple different taxi lanes. And Dana knows exactly what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, if you're on the center line of these things, you're supposed to be able to pass another mad dog and have adequate clearance and they don't really tell you exactly what adequate clearance is but every time that happens I'm I don't know about you Dana but I'm looking at it going I don't think we have clearance I mean I really am not it, comfortable with this and I always kind of cheat a little bit and go a little bit farther you know, a little bit wider if I have to pass another airplane going in the opposite direction in that uh in that uh alleyway
3: yeah it's it's really close I mean your puck effect it gets up real quick mhm and we don't in, have in,
1: huge in, wingspan on, you know, 108 feet, 10 inches or something like that. You know, it's a, yeah. it's it's not a huge wingspan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway.
4: yeah but, and JFK is notoriously narrow. Its taxiways uh, are some of the tightest we go to. Uh, JFK and Newark are similar. But JFK has got quite a few complex uh, turning areas uh, where lots of taxiways merge. And you, you've really got to have uh, your eyes out on stalks and be very careful. It's beginning to look a lot
1: like Christmas. Hey, you know, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And... It
2: is so much Christmas music going on now, especially. Do yeah,
1: and I'm thinking, you know, I should probably play some. I'm sure I have some here in one of my soundboards. So maybe I should try to find some, uh, some music to uh, sing to. But in the meantime, why don't we uh, continue with uh, our news folder... And the reason why we're talking about Christmas, and many of you are probably thinking, oh, I know what they're going to talk about. Yes, American Airlines Group Incorporated is working to resolve <laughs> a scheduling fault that gave time off to too many pilots in December, leaving some flights without enough crew during the holiday rush. The glitch, that's what everybody uh, calls a problem with a computer, the glitch Is causing staffing shortages on thousands of flights next month, the Allied Pilots Association, the union representing the carrier's aviators, said in a message to its members. American spokesman Matt Miller declined to quantify the potential number of flights involved, saying the airline expects to correct the problem and avoid cancellations. Now, I think I read somewhere that that number is something huge, like 15,000 flights or something ridiculous.
2: 1,500, I think it was. 1,500.
1: Okay, that makes more sense.
2: 15,000 would be.
1: Yeah, it would be huge. But, you know, I could see that number over the holiday period. I could see that many flights, but okay. Um, Anyway, uh, the uh, American spokesperson said, we are working through this to make sure we take care of our pilots and get our customers to where they need to go over the holidays. American is offering pilots 150% of their normal hourly wage to pick up some of the flights. The top rate laid out in their contract, the APA, the Allied Pilots Association has filed a grievance saying the proposed solution violates its labor contract. The union wants input with American to find a solution that will motivate pilots to give up vacation. They've already been granted after years of working over the holidays, said Dennis Taylor, an APA spokesman. This is certainly not routine. He said this is a crisis right now. And in that crisis, they've gone solo. He's referring to, of course, the uh, the company um, and uh, they were trying to resolve the situation by uh, you know doing something but as many of us know who fly for airlines that have uh, union representation you just can't unilaterally do something without contacting the uh, union leadership and and doing some kind of a side letter agreement or something uh, you just can't say hey if you come in and fly these trips that you were supposed to be on vacation for we'll give you a one and a half times your normal rate now I'm thinking to myself, Dana and I are going, huh? Just 150 percent? Many of you know that uh, I like to go out and fly green slip trips at Acme, and uh, our green slip is worth 200 percent, two times the normal rate. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'd give up my Christmas vacation at one and a half times the normal rate. Would you, Dana?
3: I don't even think I would do it for two. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us would It'd probably be close to three.
1: Yeah. But they know that you know pilots are greedy. They'll, there's a point at which they'll they'll hit a number and uh, they'll they'll get enough people to you know say okay, I'll give up time with um, you know with the family to uh, go out there and fly these flights. But uh, wow, talking about a snafu, huh? It reminds me a little yeah, of the Irish airline. Yeah, they uh, had some kind of a snafu that had something to do with holiday time as well, didn't they? Yeah, but ge- this is gen- This is not uh, a pilot shortage, though. I no. mean, they're all they're all there. They're just not going to go on vacation. Yeah, <laughs> yes, right. should also make the point that uh, I've, I've read several different places uh, on the in the social uh, media, as well as the uh, uh, other forms of media that were saying that none of the flights were covered for Christmas time. And that's not true. It's just that it not all of them are covered. Um, they it somehow jumped from not sufficient coverage to no coverage. And that's not that's not a true statement.
3: I think what it was, wasn't it that the uh, swaps, uh, the drop system allowed unlimited drops? I'm not sure. I don't I know what all the that, details are. I think are.
2: what happened is so, however, the uh, trip trade drop system works, they all became available to trade and drop to everyone. Yeah. Like, as opposed like to how we- block, you know, blacked out or whatever for a certain
3: plus mm-hmm. five flights. We look in and see what the, uh, you know, what coverage is and tells you, you know, whether it's red or, I mean, uh, blue or black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if it's, if it's blue, of course you can, you can drop. If, you, if it's black, it, you can't. So it, I think something like that in the system allowed it, it was overridden or there was a, there was a technical difficulty with it. And it basically allowed anybody that wanted to drop their trip to, to allow them to drop their or swap their trips out. Wow. So
2: And, Jeff, yeah. you, you were correct. If I had my zeros wrong, it was 15,000.
3: Yeah, I, thought, 1, I, yeah, I yeah. thought it was a but huge no, number. I mean, I'm thinking, wow. I had my wow.
2: zeros. That just sounded crazy when <laughs> well, you know. said
1: it. That's what I, that's I that's thought. Awesome. When I saw that, I thought, well, that can't be right. <laughs> that no, is no, a I just huge number of trips to cover. How yeah. many pilots? How many pilots they got? Have you got 15,000 pilots? <laughs> they got about probably about 15,000 pilots, maybe oh, well, more. looks like they're all going to have to work Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> well... You know, I don't think that well,
3: 15,000 the, 000 trips are, are you not 15,000 trips,
1: 15,000 flights. So, you know, you're going to fly, yeah. you know, several flights. And uh, so you can divide that by some factor. But yeah, uh, fair
3: enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it may have not all just been captain. I mean, it may have just been captain or it may have been just FO that was, you know, missing not both pilots. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of factors in there. And it, it doesn't seem like a, it seems like it's a lot, but it really in the big scheme of things, isn't that much.
4: Yeah. So here's the question. I quite understand the union's attitude, but what do you guys think? Couldn't they just reset those trips and say, right, all those swaps you did, all those trade tradebacks, they're canceled. We fixed the software glitch. Now have another go. I mean, doesn't
1: that work? I think that violates their contract. <laughs> oh. Okay.
3: Yeah, probably. Now, it does.
1: you know, I'm sure, you know, they're, they're going to be just like the Acme pilots. You know, we're we don't want to see, you know, the company go down the twos because they screwed something up and we're going to want to help out. But we are going to want something in return for it. So I'm sure what's going to happen here is the union and the company, they're going to get together. They're going to, you know, lay out something. They're going to agree to something, a side letter of agreement. And it's going to be something that, uh, you know, it's going to hurt the company, but it's not going to be like canceling all these flights. You know, it's not going to be that bad, but uh, they're going to end up spending a little bit extra money on pilot salaries for the, the Christmas vacation period, I would imagine.
2: And apparently well, there it, have been some recent uh, tweets or hints that perhaps they've reached that agreement, whatever it is. I haven't seen any specifics, but just yeah. within the past few hours. Oh, really? Okay. It's, it's been resolved. Taken care, of. Yeah. Resolved. I don't know how, but I, I, I don't know if that's completely official, but
3: yeah. Well, you know, it is a lot less expensive, to uh, resolve it ahead of time than all the ill will that would be oh, caused yeah. by <laughs> inconveniencing all those passengers.
1: Yeah, needless to say if you're you know, if you booked a flight on American Airlines over the Christmas time, your your flight's most likely uh, going to operate. Uh, I don't think they're going to let it, let it, you know, happen. So not exactly. let it happen, but you know, let the let the shortage. They, they
2: know about it already. It's not something that's happening okay. last minute. They've got a few weeks to work it out. It's going to yeah. it's going to turn out
1: okay. Right.
3: I have a buddy who's an instructor over there that's actually going on vacation same day I arrive over, uh, over in the, I think it's the 18th and 19th of, next of December this month, I guess now. And I, (laughs) I texted him, I said, Hey, I guess you're not going on vacation now because he purchased tickets on American. (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah, Uh, that's, it's being overhyped. It's going to be all set. So if, if internally, and he works in flight ops and training, if he's not worrying about it, I think it's, it's kind of a media overblow as usual. So um, that's fun to talk about on aviation podcasts. (laughs) Absolutely it is. (laughs) Well, it's my first talk about media overblows. Yeah.
1: All right. Oh, what's this? I'm hearing something in the background here. That's nice music. Kind of sounds like um, the music you'd hear in the Indonesian islands, perhaps Bali. Oh, what's that? Ooh. sounds like a big explosion. Is that you Wednesday night? To yeah. meet Tuesday <laughs> night? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is actually a, uh, a volcano erupting huh? on the uh, island of Bali in uh, Indonesia. Mount Agung. Uh, how do I do there? Mount Agung. Uh, the uh, Nagura Rai International Airport, Denpasar, is resuming operations. Of course, this is when I, I pulled this up a couple days ago. So I'm not I'm not sure if they are actually resuming operations or not. They say in this article that they could end up shutting down the airport again depending on what happens with this uh, large volcano that is erupting and uh, so they said uh, volcanic ash and debris is ongoing and the airport might be closed again if the wind changes direction. So I just wanted to have an excuse to play Bali music and volcanic eruptions.
4: That's part of the uh, Pacific Rim, isn't it? The, it is. uh, they call it a circle of fire or something. The ring of fire.
0: Ring of fire. There
4: you go. Yep. Well, you guys would be well familiar with that, even though you don't fly there.
1: Right. Uh, I used to fly a lot of that uh, area of the world uh, when I was in the Air Force. Uh, but you know, you always have to you have to know where you're going to go. Ah, uh, staff.
2: Yep. And I know I have been to the volcano that this song was written about.
1: Oh really? No. Oh
2: yeah.
0: Now I don't know.
1: I don't know. I don't know. You should know. I
7: don't know where I'm gonna go in the volcano. What do you say? Let me say now I don't know.
0: I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go in the volcano.
3: Uh I
1: love Jimmy Buffett. It's a great album as well. Yes. Montserrat, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Is the, uh, Montserrat. Okay. Oh, the that's Caribbean. down there uh, in the uh, Caribbean, right? Correct. Correct. The yes. Eastern Caribbean? You and your dad went mm. there, right? No?
2: Yeah. I just had to think if it was Eastern, but yes, I it think is. I think it is. It's like <laughs> it east is. of
1: uh, Puerto yeah. Rico, right? Yeah. Yes, it is. How'd they do in the uh, recent uh, hurricanes? they get destroyed?
2: Um, no, I think they actually fared. Pretty well. They were just far enough to the south.
1: Ah, okay. That's good. That's good. Uh, One more piece of uh, news in the news folder. The FAA warns that drones are more damaging than bird strikes to planes. Huh. We've been saying that Ah. for quite some time.
4: (laughs) They they must have a few geniuses there.
1: Yeah, well they did some research, uh, Captain Nick. And uh, they said that uh, drones that collide with planes cause more damage to the birds of the same size because of their solid motors, batteries, and other parts. A study released by the FAA on Tuesday found the study's researchers say aircraft manufacturing standards designed for bird strikes strikes aren't appropriate for ensuring planes... Wait a minute, that sentence is bad. Designed for bird strikes aren't appropriate uh, for ensuring... Planes can withstand collisions with drones. Okay, I still don't know what's wrong with that sentence. But anyway, we're going to move on. The FAA yeah. said it will depend on drone makers to help develop technology to, de- to detect and avoid planes. Yeah, funny old thing drones
4: are not soft and squidgy. Birds are.
1: That is true. Very yeah. true. And because birds are, as a, this article goes on to say, mostly made of water. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just well, like we are. We're mostly yeah. water. Oh, right. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Research, research said that drone manufacturers could reduce the potential risks if they used less metal in their devices. Uh, let's <laughs> see. Uh, make them, yeah, out, make of them out of bite. <laughs> make them out of bite. Yeah, yeah. styrofoam and balsa wood. Bin liners. That's it.
2: Put some feathers on them. And, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, DJI Technology, the world's largest civilian drone maker, issued an emailed statement praising the report. Why? Well, DJI's Phantom 3 was the copter used in the study, and guess what? They are doing several things already. It says they already employ several of the methods suggested in the report to keep its devices away from planes, such as automatically halting flights that try to go too high or that stray into prohibited zones. It's also adding sensors that trigger when aircraft approach. And And they're
4: going to build their uh, drones out of jelly.
1: Yes. Yeah, they're not going to fly very well, but. They're going to be safer. (laughs) Uh, From CBS Interactive, they added researchers also found that the drone's lithium-ion battery tended to shatter in high-impact collisions. But in (laughs) cases where it remained even partially intact, those batteries started to heat up, raising the potential for a fire danger if a damaged battery were to get lodged in the plane after a collision. Hey, so, oh, not only, <laughs> so not only do you have a you know damage from the actual you know mechanical interaction uh, of the airplane and the drone, but now you have something out there stuck in your airplane that's catching your airplane on fire. Oh,
4: oh worst still comes through the windshield into the <laughs> flight deck in your lap, as, uh, which is <laughs> sits in your lap and bursts into fi- flames. <laughs> that'll be a ring of
0: fire.
1: Yeah, it'll yeah, <laughs> definitely be a ring of fire. Fire. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. Some Johnny
2: Cash in here, too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah I, I need to find that one, don't I? Okay, that's enough of the news. Time now for the best part of the show your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okie dokie. Where do we want to start here? How about? um, How are we doing
2: time wise? Should we start with plain tales?
1: We could do that. We could do that. Um, It it would be a little bit unusual, but uh, it might help me because I I have to go up and uh, feed my doogie. doggy. And uh, so why don't we do that right now? This week's episode of Plane Tales. The old
4: pilot's plane tales written in the blood of the innocent this is one of the most heart-rending stories that i can recall through incompetence cost-cutting collusion and negligence from their government the manufacturer and their airline a blameless crew on alaska 261 fought to keep their aircraft airborne it was the turn of the 21st century and although Alaska Airlines had a long history that stretched back to 1932 when they started with a Stinton and float plane carrying just three passengers a time out of Anchorage, times were hard. They had fought their way out of severe financial troubles in the 70s, made worse by the loss of 111 passengers in a Boeing 727 that crashed on approach, at the time the worst single plane crash in US history. Again they struggled after deregulation in the 80s When Southwest came on the scene in 1993 Alaska faced yet more competition and there was a continual drive to keep costs down In efforts to reduce their maintenance load Alaska had applied to the FAA to reduce the frequency of a particular check on its fleet of MD-80s The check involved getting up to the top of the fin, some 20 feet high, and gaining access to a special nut and screw The large nut, which appropriately enough for our show was called the Acme nut, was fixed in position inside the fin There was a large and long threaded rod located inside the nut that ran up to a pair of electric motors attached to the bottom of the moving tailplane, sometimes referred to in America as the horizontal stabilizer, that sat on top of the fin. The principle was simple enough. If the motor was activated, it turned the screw, which rotated inside the fixed nut, moving the motor assembly and with it, the front of the hinged tailplane, up or down, depending on which direction it was turned. The MD-80 Mad Dog uses conventional elevators, albeit they are actually moved by tabs connected by cables to the flight controls, which create an aerodynamic force that flies the elevator into position. The elevators are attached to the rear of the tailplane to control the aircraft in pitch, but the pilots, or the autopilot, can move the angle of the whole tailplane several degrees up or down using the electric motors to trim the aircraft out. This trim system is, however, the only device holding the tailplane in the correct position. It is a primary system, and there is no backup. However. Since it was such a safety-critical component, the manufacturer had taken pains to ensure that it was robustly constructed. The acme nut was cast in an aluminium-bronze alloy whilst the screw was made of case-hardened steel. It was also designed with several fail-safe features. If the nut fractured, a torque tube within the screw could support it. If the torque tube failed, the screw and nut were strong enough to hold. If 90% of the screw and nut threads failed, the remaining 10% would prevent total failure. It was also designed with a double thread spiral, so if one entire thread stripped, the other could take the load. However, unlike some other aircraft with a similar system, such as the DC-8, which had two independent jack screw assemblies, the DC-9, MD-80, and Boeing 717 series all employed a single jack screw. When it first came into service, the trim system was supposed to last 30,000 hours without a check. However, It was soon discovered that on both the DC-8 and DC-9 systems the wear rate was considerably higher than expected. As a result, an inspection and lubrication schedule was created and a special tool designed that could be attached to the end of the screw shaft to measure the play within the screw and therefore the amount of wear on the threads. Alaska decided to reduce their dependency on expensive manufacturers' tools by making its own version of the endplay measuring tool, and in addition, it applied to the FAA to reduce the frequency of the checks. With the agreement of the manufacturer and the FAA, the frequency was reduced from 3,600 hours to 5,000 hours. Then the check went to a time period frequency of 26 months, which roughly meant every 6,400 hours. Finally, at the time of flight 261, the period had become every 30 months or so, around 9,550 hours. This final reduction in check time was made after Alaska presented a data package on the wear of five of their aircraft out of a fleet of 40. We ought to take a little look at the aircraft that performed Flight 261 on that fateful day, the 31st of January 2000. The airframe was November 963 Alpha Sierra, and it had been to Oakland for its last major maintenance C-check just over two years earlier. This C-check included an end-play check of the trim jack assembly. The day shift mechanic and his inspector noted in the maintenance record that the horizontal stab acme screw and nut had maximum allowable end play limit, 0.040 of an inch, that's four thousandths of an inch. The work record showed an action was now required to replace the nut and perform a maintenance routine. The following swing shift supervisor also signed off on the planned action. What followed were several days of notes in the engineering records of the attempts made to rectify the fault that had been noted. The notes included such comments as, get a copy of the EO engineering order and see what we need to do and order. Lube and treat complied with, still parts to order. Continuing parts ordering and in brackets the word panic in capitals. Further on it read Tuesday departure looks doubtful. Then a lead mechanic wrote Redo Acme screw check and confirm problem. Finally, on the day the aircraft was scheduled to return to the line, a different mechanic and inspector scored out. The original requirement to replace the worn components and wrote in its place, rechecked Acme screw and nut end play per work card, found end play to be within limits. The fault with this primary vital component of the aircraft had somehow disappeared, and the fault was closed off with no work done. There might have been one last chance to put the genie back in the bottle The jack screw was supposed to be inspected and lubricated A mere four months before flight 261 While in San Francisco However, a task that was supposed to take at least four hours Was completed in a quarter of that time And in the opinion of the NTSB, inadequately The dice had rolled a final time Captain Ted Thompson, with his first officer Bill Tansky, picked up their aircraft at Puerto Vallarta, bound for Seattle, with an intermediate stop in San Francisco. They were both in their fifties and considered experienced and capable. The aircraft landed from its previous flight without any faults. Ted and Bill took off on what was expected to be just another working day. Everything appeared normal until around 29,000 feet when the crew noticed a trim annunciator warning light. The trim had jammed, but since the autopilot had been flying, they hadn't noticed it earlier. They took out the autopilot and immediately found a considerable out-of-trim condition that needed about 30 pounds of force on the controls to keep the aircraft level. By this time they were over the ocean, nearly abeam Los Angeles, and Ted Thompson was in contact with his maintenance and operation departments at SeaTac and LAX. Neither the crew nor company maintenance could determine the cause of the jam, and repeated attempts to overcome it with the primary and secondary motors proved fruitless. Ted knew that power was going to the motors, as he could see the load on his AC electric spike when he tried to activate them. Alaska dispatch personnel were very keen that the aircraft continue on to its destination to reduce disruption to the schedule, and they tried hard to influence the captain, but ultimately Ted Thompson chose to divert to LAX. They continued to try and move the trim motors, until at 1609 it finally unjammed, with almost deadly consequences. The trim system moves rapidly to an extreme nose-down position, forcing the aircraft into a near-vertical dive. "'What are you doing?' said Bill. "'It clicked off,' Ted replied. "'It got worse. Give me high-pressure pumps. Help me back. Help me back!' They shouted on the radio. Center
5: Alaska 261, we are in a dive here. Yeah, we're at 26,000 feet. We are in a vertical dive, not a dive yet, but uh, we've lost vertical control of our airplane.
4: Only with a massive force on the controls of around 140 pounds did they manage to level the aircraft off some 10,000 feet lower. They desperately tried to work the problem and decided to get lower and then configure the aircraft for landing to see if they could keep control. This they did deliberately over the water rather than risk people on the ground. As they tried to configure the aircraft for landing there was an extremely loud noise on the cockpit voice recorder as the overstrained jack screw assembly failed completely. The crew put out an unheard mayday. In the ensuing vertical dive, the pilots tried desperately to regain control of their crippled aircraft by inverting it. Push, push, push blue side up. OK, right rudder, right rudder. Are we flying? Again and again they fought the controls until the end. Other aircraft kept LA centre, Advised.
7: Hi there, Delta. That plane has just started to do a big, huge plunge.
6: A big, huge plunge. Uh, thank you, Skywest 5154. The MD80 is uh, one becoming about two o'clock, about ten miles down. Another pilot reports he's really looking pretty bad. They're
7: heading you to your right. Sir, you see him?
5: Yes, sir. Uh, I concur. He is uh, definitely in a nose down uh, position, descending quite rapidly. Okay, very good. Keep your eye on him. Alaska 261, are you here
6: with us, sir?
7: and he's just hit the water. Uh, yes, sir. he yeah, uh, uh, the water uh, down.
4: Due to the severity of the impact, nobody survived. Indeed, very few bodies were found intact. The crash killed 83 passengers, 3 cabin crew and 2 pilots. Using fishing trawlers, about 85% of the aircraft was recovered, including the horizontal stabiliser trim system. The jack screw was found with metal filaments wrapped around it. These were determined to have come from the acme nut. 90% of the nut's thread had been stripped on the previous flight, and the rest had failed over the Pacific Ocean, off the coast of Los Angeles. When the threads failed, the screws slipped until it reached the end stop, but this was never designed to hold the sort of aerodynamic loads being placed on it, and it very soon failed. At that point, the tailplane was forced further up until it was held for a short while by the fin housing, but eventually even this failed. The aircraft, already in a dire situation, was pitched down into a dive from which it was impossible to recover. The NTSB report on the accident gave a damning analysis of the conduct of various organisations, but particularly the airline and the FAA. The reason for the failure of the Acme nut was a combination of poor lubrication, It was found to be dry and the grease inside the nut was so old and caked it had obviously not been properly maintained for a long time. The increase in the inspection period and the inadequacy of the replacement measuring tool that the airline replicated. The board faulted the FAA for accepting the changes. A special inspection conducted by the NTSB in April 2000 of Alaska Airlines' uncovered widespread significant deficiencies that the FAA should have uncovered earlier. The investigation concluded that FAA surveillance of Alaska Airlines had been deficient for at least several years. One mechanic who worked on the accident aircraft on its last sea check stated, I had never come across any jack screw that was worn to that extent. A detailed analysis of Alaska's maintenance organization and procedures came up with pages of discrepancies and errors. A summary stated that procedures were not being followed, controls were not effective, authority and responsibility not defined, and quality assurance ineffective. After more undercover work, a maintenance supervisor had his licence revoked for deliberately falsifying records, and the FAA proposed a $211,000 civil penalty against Alaska for operating a damaged aircraft on 47 flights without making required logbook entries. The NTSB Administrative Court harshly criticised the airline for its maintenance practices, calling them illogical and incredible. The board also criticised the design of the aircraft. Since the Acme nut failed, it showed that certain wear mechanisms could affect both threads and it could not provide a fail-safe condition. Progressive failures should be easy to see and there should have been a fail-safe mechanism to prevent the effects of a total ACME nut loss. They also stated that pilots should be instructed that for flight system faults they should not attempt procedures beyond those in the checklist. NTSB board member John J. Gogliar's statement for the final report read, This is a maintenance accident. Alaska Airlines maintenance and inspection of its horizontal stabilizer activation system was poorly conceived and woefully executed. The failure was compounded by poor oversight. Had any of the managers, mechanics, inspectors, supervisors or FAA overseers whose job it was to protect this mechanism done their job conscientiously, this accident would not have happened. The NTSB has made several specific maintenance recommendations, some already accomplished, that will, if followed, prevent the reoccurrence of this particular accident but maintenance, poorly done, will find a way to bite somewhere else. For their actions during the emergency, Captain Thompson and First Officer Tansky were both awarded the Airline Pilots Association Gold Medal for Heroism, the only time this award has been given posthumously. By bensounds.com.
1: Very well told, the story, Nick and uh, Dana and I. It's very personal because that's the airplane that we fly.
3: Sure is. It's very close to home.
4: Yeah, I knew that one would uh, hit home, guys, uh, which is kind of why I um, sought your thoughts on whether it would be uh, suitable to cover, so I was very grateful you uh, agreed with me that it was uh, a story worth telling. Um, uh, It's hard to separate the two. There's a really detailed and complicated story about the appalling uh, maintenance of the aircraft, um, a lot of which um, is hidden because there were so many court cases, of course, that were settled out of court, and I'm sure there were gagging orders placed. Um, The only really um, source of detailed information is the NTSB report, but thank the Lord they did not hold back. They really laid into the agencies that had let the uh, pilots and ultimately, of course, caused the deaths of all those people. They they really didn't hold back, and they made sure that they – Um, outlined exactly where
1: the faults lay. Mm -hmm. So go ahead, Steph.
2: Oh, no, I just, you know, I think that is the really good thing about having an organization like the NTSB because it just really is looking to make sure that the circumstances are known, that you have objective information and what can you do going forward to make sure that this never happens again, right? So that's the great thing about the NTSB, I think.
1: So I think that uh, one of the things that the FAA has been faulted for over the years is the fact that it kind of has a dual role, uh, one to promote aviation and two, to ensure that it's being operated safely. And they say, some people say that uh, they kind of sometimes um, what's the word? Um,
3: is it a conflict of conflict. interest? Yeah. Or-
1: yeah. Yes, we
4: put it. Yeah. Um, there was one question I had, guys. Uh, now, not wishing to put you on the spot, but mm-hmm. um, uh, reading the transcript of the copy voice recorder, um, they uh, when uh, the captain first uh, lost control, when the, um, the jack assembly slipped to the bottom of the screw, when all the threads finally went, uh, he. He said uh high pressure pumps on to his first officer um now is i I understood that your uh elevators through the trim tabs were entirely manual did they actually have uh pump augmentation
1: was there some way you could increase the pressure to the pumps or was he talking about fuel pumps? What would you guess well there there is a certain aspect of the uh, elevator system on the uh, eighty series that uh that is hydraulically powered as an assist in uh, uh, cases of deep stall, uh, which you know high or uh, what do you call it? T tail airplanes um, are uh, at risk of getting into a deep stall. Deep stall. Susceptible. Yes, yeah, susceptible. Thank you. And uh, the uh, and so that's the only. It's like an augmentation system that happens at a, an extreme uh, level of travel that uh, kicks in. So. Maybe he was thinking, you know, that that was going to somehow be go into effect and, and be able to, you know, save them from from this thing. Uh, okay. But um, obviously uh, it wouldn't have any effect at all because the elevator was just basically along for the ride because the stabilizer was completely, you know. This Yeah,
4: they, they would have had, uh, mind you, the first time they managed to level it off, they had 140 pounds of force uh, to level the aircraft off. I mean, that's a huge load to mm-hmm. hold, um, even, uh, you know, with the augmentation. So I was just going, wow. But then, of course, the, the whole thing finally gave way, and the force that the uh, tailplane exerted was w- well in excess of what the elevator could ever achieve. Right. I, I I thought they were very brave to try and invert the airplane and push it through to come out the other side upside down. Of course, ultimately I don't think it would have uh done much except it extend the flight for a very short time.
0: Yeah. Um
4: but uh yeah, just incredibly sad. Um and you still fly around with that that primary system and it's the only thing that holds the front of that tailplane or horizontal stabilizer.
1: Uh, in position there's has there been any modification so I was gonna ask you <laughs> because you did all this research. I'm yeah. hoping because that was one of the findings was that uh, there was no, you know, system to prevent this from occurring the way uh, because of this design. And I'm thinking, well I certainly hope that uh McDonnell Douglas did something to uh you know add a, no, a no, another I, level I of safety.
4: I don't know because I I mean uh, I it's very hard to to then research every modification that's yeah. been done. There was there was nothing other than recommendation in mm-hmm. the NTSB. And, of course, that's they, they don't enforce it. The FAA and Boeing would then have enforced that. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not aware of it. So, but certainly a more solid um, stop to the jack screw would have possibly helped. Uh, that stop that they had at the bottom of the jack screw was only there to uh, – uh, prevent uh, the electric motors winding all the way off the bottom because uh, mm-hmm. there was an electric stop. And then if uh, that failed and you continue to try and trim to the end of the screw, eventually hit a mechanical stop. Mm-hmm. But that stop wasn't capable of withstanding all the aerodynamic forces. It would only withstand the twisting force of the electric motor.
1: Yeah, and unlike um- – well, the the airplane that comes to mind to me, uh, the Boeing 727, has a, a manual um, method to trim uh, the pitch, uh, the stabilizer, in, in addition to the electric. But um, as far, <laughs> I could be wrong about this, but I think on the uh, Mad Dog, it's just electric. It's a primary electric and a secondary electric, and that's it. Yeah. There is no that's mechanical. Just, that's just two
4: mechanism. different motors on the same jack
1: screw. Yep, the jack screw yeah. and, the, yeah. and the Acme nut. Now, I always that's thought it. I was an ACME nut, but
3: uh, <laughs> <laughs> I different think kind of ACME nut. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, You know, you, you're absolutely right. There, 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 there is only the primary and the secondary, and that's it. It's all electric. If, if you lose it, which uh, I had the, uh, I did talk about it on a show not too long ago, where we had a, a situation where we had lost the primary motor. And that was quite scary, because um, that's the first thing that went through my mind is what happened to this this vlog. Yeah. Of course of course you must be very sensitive well, to any faults there.
1: Well I I've shared this with people that every time I do a walk around I you know I take a really long time and gaze at the uh, at the at the tail and the horizontal stabilizer not that I can really see anything because everything that we've been talking about all the failures were internal and there's no way you can see it from the outside uh, but I always rem- it's, I'm always reminded of this this uh, accident when I yeah. do my walk around
4: you know, the, the engineering procedure when you uh, lube these, and that's really all it needed was adequate lubrication. It might have just gone on for a long time without. Um, was the fact that you had to squirt uh, oil into the top of the nut and make sure it, it exuded out from the bottom. And that obviously hadn't been done for so long that the, the, um, the oil inside the nut was caked like coal it was mm-hmm. it, it dried out completely at the, and that really was the part of that screw were actually rusty because there was so little lubrication on there wow. i mean well, if you look at the,
2: if, if you look at the picture of the screw itself you can see uh, around the screw there's actually other metal shavings and that's the yeah, inside that, that's the, the
4: thread from the, thread from the, the nut. Nut. right yeah, as, yeah. The, uh, as the thread stripped it it left this metal spiral uh that went up there but even the fact that they had this twin thread system that wasn't sufficient to say but that was supposed to be foolproof uh it obviously
1: wasn't yeah and we also have to you know remind everybody that uh this this um md80 series is just the dc9 dash 80 82 83 85 87 uh, 88 and the uh, dc9 has been flying around for years and years and years so i guess maybe the faa said look if, if they hadn't made all these egregious errors and and uh you know signed off things that weren't supposed to be signed off and didn't and, and if they didn't keep extending the period to continue this lubrication and and you know fudge the paperwork and everything else this would not have been an, an, an incident or accident and perhaps they thought that it's the design is good enough and it's not worth going back and you know coming up with some other kind of system you know to make sure that it was fail safe.
4: But, uh, but funnily enough, um, that same principle of uh, screw jack uh, uh, is used in NASA spacecraft. And uh, that was one of the th- areas that they said that NASA needs to go and have a look at its uh, mechanisms that are Frequently on a spacecraft, they're almost all primary systems. You don't have room or the weight to have lots of secondary systems. But they said they too need to go and make sure that their systems are adequately protected.
1: Yes. As Liz says in the in the chat room, the falsified paperwork is the shocking thing to me, and that really yeah, is that, the most appalling part of it. Is the yeah. is the deceit and the um you know the yeah
4: that that was the engineer that overwrote the um that. For bad nut, but he was then investigated. Now they didn't get him on uh, on failing to uh, snag that nut and get it replaced. They got him on other things, and there was, of course, there's a bit another big story behind this that you people might be interested in reading about the whistleblower uh, that actually uh, the FBI um, uh, put uh, microphones on him. And he went back to work and uh, exposed this uh, engineer who was falsifying paperwork. And that fine and a lot of that other business was to do with other things he was doing to, to, to with throttle quadrants and other vital systems oh. that he was falsifying paperwork on for,
1: for that airline. Wow. So, uh, yeah, eventually they wow. got him. Sad All story. Save a dollar. Yeah. Mm. Very, very sad story and very well told. Thank you, Nick, for doing that. And, um, Yeah, I don't know what else to say. It was time time to move on. It was, uh, you know, it was was a senseless thing. It didn't have to happen, and uh, as so many of these major aircraft accidents are. Yeah. All right. Well, Ray wrote in a while back. Ray, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta, he says, "Hi, folks. Had this flight on the on in the background today on uh, flight radar twenty-four, I believe. Um, Kind of the Av Geek equivalent of watching grass." Grow, and so he has this picture of, uh, the track of a certain flight and, uh, making all kinds of, uh, circles in the sky and, uh, uh for quite some time, apparently. So, uh, the, uh, story goes this, apparently a 16 year old passenger fainted after takeoff. This is a flight, uh, from, uh, Istanbul to somewhere in Canada. I think, where do you guys have the article up? Uh, I do to Istanbul it. to. Um, oh, uh, Montreal.
5: Montreal is that, what that yeah, YUL. <laughs> YUL. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, it was supposed to be a ten-hour and thirty-minute flight. Anyway, so uh, after takeoff, a sixteen-year-old fainted. The crew decided to divert back to Istanbul. But now they say the passenger is okay, but they will still land at Istanbul uh, around 10 to 11 o'clock local time. They're waiting until they reach a safe landing weight. They will continue the flight after a crew change and new supplies are loaded to the plane. So Ray goes on. So apparently the A330, uh, Tango Charlie Juliet Oscar Alpha, doesn't have fuel dumping capability. I don't know whether that's an option that they didn't select or whether that's the way the A330 is built. Can you help us with that, uh, Nick? I think that's an option, isn't it?
4: Uh, yeah, you can have it. You can have a version with or without to save weight. you can have the without version, and that's the version that we fly in Acme Red, so we can't dump. But uh, if you're not concerned too much about carrying a bit of extra weight, then you can have the uh, jettison system
1: installed. Okay. And uh, Ray says, seems like a total waste of time, fuel, money, and everyone's patience. Istanbul to Montreal was supposed to be a a 10-and-a-half-hour flight. These guys flew around somewhere between 7 hours and 20 minutes and 9 hours and 19 minutes, depending on whose departure times are correct. Have you folks ever heard of a long fuel burn like this? I would have thought that they could have flown at least to the U.K. without ever being too far from medical facilities. I guess... The overweight landing is a big concern, but it would have been needed anyway if the passenger went close to being in extremis. So doing it on 9,000 feet of concrete at Istanbul or 12,000 feet of concrete at Heathrow isn't much different. Uh, Istanbul, uh, Heathrow looks like about a third of the total uh, flight segment from Istanbul to Montreal. And at 14,000 feet, the views would have been great while wending their way through Alpine passes would have been great IFE in-flight entertainment or an enterprising captain might have merely flown inverted for a while and let the fuel run out the vents. Later, folks. Ray, of course, that's tongue-in-cheek right there. Uh, Thank you, Ray. So so our uh, A330 expert, uh, Captain Nick, uh, what do do you think about some of the things that he's uh, talking about here?
4: Well, uh, yeah. Um, The reason they wouldn't have landed en route, and rather we've gone on to accomplish some of the flight, was they probably didn't have a crew there to take the aircraft on. They knew uh, that the crew were probably going to run out of duty hours. Um, and having decided to stay and then said, okay, well, now it's the passengers, okay. We can, um, it's not so much of an emergency. We can burn off fuel. Um, you then, unless you've got a fuel, some a, a whole crew sitting somewhere else, you're going to go, say, to London's land, then have a 12 hour delay while the crew rest. Uh, and then get back on the flight and carry on. So uh, I think from the airline's point of view, it was much simpler just to put the aircraft back on the ground uh, at Istanbul and replace the crew. And the reason that they didn't uh, do an overweight landing because there's no point in risking wrecking the airplane uh, for a situation that is no longer a real emergency anymore. So, yeah, huge inconvenience for the passengers having to drill around the air for all that time and then have another go sh- shortly after, which was sort of a very long flight. That would have been a huge day for them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I couldn't actually see a way around this. This is probably what I would have done if I'd been in the same situation of obviously with uh, consultation with operations and what they want done with the aircraft. Because as soon as you're no longer in an emergency situation, you're then really complying with the airlines requirement uh, of where they want the airplane put. Because uh, you know uh, you're, you're then uh, in a situation where you, your captain's um, authority is no longer the the, the case that you're dealing with an emergency, so I have absolute authority. Now you're doing it as a negotiation with the company as to what's best for everybody and uh, how are we going to get the flight back on the road again as quickly as possible. Yeah,
2: right. And there may have been uh, you know is a medical situation, so uh, even though they said the passenger was okay, you know. You don't know that for certain. It's it's probably not a great idea to say, oh, no, it's fine now. And we'll just continue on and go on our way. If you have any doubt about it, you know, stick with that plan of going back and, like you said, all the other crew considerations and operational considerations. So.
1: And regarding the medical part of it, as you mentioned, Steph, at least they would be in the uh, immediate area um, Correct. of uh, Istanbul and they could, you know, if they needed to. If something,
2: if it changed suddenly, you know, they have options.
1: Right. So. A lot of things that, you know, you just don't realize that uh, are, are factors and uh, things to think about. Um, you know, you think it's pretty straightforward, but a lot of times you don't think, oh, that's right. You know, what about the, you know, where are they going to find the crew to fly the flight on from Heathrow to Montreal? Obviously, as Captain Nick said, <laughs> there's probably not going to be any crew there to do that. Uh, so, yeah, good points. Thanks, Ray, for sending that in. Um, let's see. This was... Uh, Sent to us by Jordan and he said where um, he sent a link to a an article in Detroit A passenger says he couldn't believe his eyes when he saw a wing on fire as his Southwest Airlines plane was about to take off. It happened last Thursday, November 2nd. Of course, this was a while back. Flight 1863 was getting ready to depart Detroit Metro Airport for St. Louis passenger David Fyodor of Wixom says he heard a weird noise, which caused him to look out the window. What he saw next shocked him. I heard a muffled thud, similar to what uh, when the landing gear is engaging. I didn't think much of it until I looked out the window and saw the wing had flames coming out from the bottom. The flames were coming out intermittently. Of course, what he was probably seeing was the flames coming from the left engine. Theodore uh, estimated the plane had 80 passengers on board. And uh, anyway, he said, I got up from my seat, went back to the back. Uh, of the airplane to where the flight attendant was. She told me to sit down. I told her to come take a look at the wing because it's on fire. (laughs) She got up and after about five or 10 seconds, she saw the flame as it was intermittent. And then she says the flight attendant then radioed to the cockpit. I think what they mean is they, she used the intercom to uh, talk to the uh, pilots in the cockpit. A couple of minutes later, the pilot announced that there was a mechanical issue and they needed to return to the back, uh, to the gate. Everyone had to exit the plane and either book another flight or blah blah blah. So, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is that, and I told uh, Jordan, I said, "Oh yeah, um, I was in Detroit on that day. Uh, this was uh, they were in line for takeoff on runway two to left, and we were over there in the queue for uh, two one right on the other side of the airfield. But all of a sudden, everything just stopped, and you could hear all kinds of chatter on the." on the ground frequency, uh, emergency vehicles. And you could see all kinds of emergency vehicles out there, you know, screaming by with their lights on and everything else. And we were wondering what was going on. And Tower said that there was some kind of a an airplane situation, an airplane on fire on the other side of the airport. And so when I saw this from Jordan, I thought, oh, yeah, this is what happened that day. Kind of interesting. Smaller. So,
4: so uh, I, I
1: missed, um, what did they find the problem was? A surging engine? Yeah, I, I, they don't really tell you in this what the actual cause. And I of, didn't
2: see any other, you know, like uh-uh. aviation herald or any other
1: no any
2: and articles I, I, or about this. It was,
1: you know, and they, and you know, as this, the the whole article talks about the wing catching on fire. But I'm pretty sure because it was intermittent, it was below the wing. I'm thinking, well, it was probably flames coming out of the back of the engine, and uh, there was some kind of an issue with the engine. I'm guessing, you know, we we don't know. You know, unless we work for Southwest Airlines in the Perhaps safety the department. the pilot was playing with the afterburner. Oh, that could be it. <laughs> yep. And he didn't think and anybody would it. see him doing it.
4: No, no, I'll, ch- I'll just check this afterburner out. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be it. On the
1: 737? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. That's the really quick one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here, here, here's another uh, story uh, sent in by Julian uh, that kind of – Is similar, sort of, or it has some of the same kind of issues involved with that uh, Istanbul to uh, Montreal flight. Uh, Julian says, recently, Sunday, November 5th, I flew from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh for a conference on a regional carrier. Since the weather was not great, we went around twice and then diverted back to Philadelphia. I was wondering why the crew made the choice to return to Philly. Could they not hold and then divert somewhere closer if the conditions called for it? Maybe it was a big picture weather sort of thing, but a number of us passengers were wondering why we didn't just hold more if we could get, if we could get back to Philly. Obviously, they had enough fuel to get all the way back to Philadelphia. Would be great to hear from you about how such decisions are made. So, this is a you know from you know a um, layperson, they're thinking, well, yeah, why didn't we just use that fuel to just hold longer and hoping that the conditions would improve at our destination and then if it if it didn't then like end up dropping into someplace close to pittsburgh but we have logistics to think about right hello
2: hello anyone anyway. <laughs> okay well, so you, broke,
1: you broke up there to me? Uh, oh Jeff. okay i'm sorry uh so we have uh, logistics to think about um yeah so i'll start and and hopefully hoping, hoping that you can hear what i'm saying um the airline i'm assuming philadelphia pittsburgh was probably an airline that uh, uh is based well i don't know it's hard to tell exactly who this was he didn't say um there regional, could be a few a yeah. few um so they have considerations here as nick mentioned in the incident with the uh, istanbul to montreal flight you have uh, uh the crew to think about and uh the fact that uh, you probably are don't have a base in Pittsburgh and you're not going to have aircrew nearby to you know continue the flight or finish the flight or whatever uh, also this airline has probably got a big operation in Philadelphia where they can you know handle the passengers better more uh, efficiently um, I don't know uh, what do you think anything else to add
4: um, if it' I don't know exactly what the weather problem was but that often covers all the local airfields to some degree or another so if you can't get into the place you're trying to go to it's not good to have a nearby diversion quite often because the same weather can easily affect them as well so you really want to have a distant diversion and if it's that distance then you might as well do the sensible thing and go back to where you started if that's where all your facilities are that's where you know your center is so well, that's probably uh, the reason if they had fuel to go that far they probably were anticipating a long diversion yeah
2: and my uh my initial thought was philadelphia and pittsburgh are not really that far apart i just pulled it up it's 329 nautical miles so
4: it's not uh, that close. You hardly get to the top of Clonnie yeah. before you're heading off down the hill again. For heaven's <laughs> sake,
2: it's it's they're not a great distance apart yeah. um, when you're talking about airline flying. So,
3: well, I wish I could add some to that, but it seemed to keep on dropping offline. So, yeah, um, yeah, things dropping off, Dana. <clears throat> well, yeah, sort of, I guess. Oh, yeah, I, it, it's it's seven. Seven thirty in the evening on a Friday night, and everybody's getting home. My bandwidth went straight to you know where, as if it isn't already a problem. Um, so I went to back to my hotspot. So answer the question on 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 his question is more than likely. Uh, I'm sure you guys already covered it, but anyways, uh, you know it, it may have been the most logical alternate within reasonable distance. Uh, I, I think I heard Jeff mention the uh, fact that crew basing it may have uh, uh, been the only. A choice based on weather conditions, uh, as far as availability of, of uh, potential uh, commercial airports. When you're at Pittsburgh, there's not a whole lot of choices right there in the immediate area. No, um, you know Cleveland, maybe Detroit, but by the time you go that far, you might as well go back to Pittsburgh. I mean, back to Philadelphia. Right. So, I mean, those are those are operational things that the airlines look at, uh, especially you know, just looking at what we're talking about with Istanbul. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot better to go back to crew base where you have uh, staff to be able to hopefully operate the flight if they run out of time. Right. In regionals, and I know nobody uh, here on the panel has flown at a regional, but they they don't schedule uh, like they do at a major. Uh, they schedule far thinner and, and more aggressively than uh, towards the, the FAA limits. So a lot of times when you run into a weather situation, the crew runs out of time more than likely. Whereas at the majors, that doesn't happen as much. Um, so that's that's another consideration operationally that the dispatcher or the dispatch control center would look at.
1: Yeah. And Steph made a good point that it's really not that far from Philly to Pittsburgh. And it's for Dana and I, you know, a normal alternate is about that kind of a distance. You know, like if we're going into Atlanta and the weather is, you know, requires an alternate. You know, typically it's going to be chattanooga nashville tennessee something like that it's uh equivalent of the distance between philadelphia and pittsburgh
3: yeah and the other thing is jeff like if we go to north uh, north florida panhandle mm-hmm. and they're they're predicting you know some uh, fog or whatever how how often is it that our alternates back to atlanta it's, yeah. it's very very common very common and, you know that's that's you know roughly at the 250 to 300 mile mark right uh give or take a little bit Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of choices when you get down on the panhandle because that whole area can get fogged in real easily. So it's not uncommon to see a base as an alternate, uh, certainly as a good choice. Right.
1: Very good point. Well, thanks, Julian, for your question. Hope that answered it. Um, Frank uh, has got a bone to pick with us, I think. Hello, APG crew. Love your podcast, but. Please take the oil fume problems on board of airliners more seriously. There are many pilots and cabin attendants who have experienced health issues due to oil smell events on board of many different aircraft types. Most of the airlines are denying any problems concerning the cabin air quality, but that's changing right now. Please have a look at this website from Lufthansa Technic. They are advertising their new maintenance procedure to change carbon seals on aircraft engines. Quote, oil smell in the cabin is the inevitable consequence. Some airlines are already testing primary filters for bleed air, for example EasyJet. We talked about that on a previous episode. Airbus affirms that there are that there are problems or at least that there may be problems linked with that's the clear yeah, right there. There may be problems linked with leaking APUs and unclean cabin air. A clean APU means clean cabin air as a quote here. APUs and engines are running a lot longer than 20 years ago until the next maintenance event on a 320, A320 aircraft for 20,000 hours or more. This is due to the online monitoring by maintenance. But I'm not sure that the carbon seals are still 100% leak-free after that time. That's not a big issue for the airline industry. Mobile jet oil is very cheap. <laughs> so he uh, sent us a link to uh, LufthansaTechnique.com and the carbon seals and that kind of thing. But I, again, I, I, don't, I hope you don't think that we're just saying you know, well, this is just a bunch of you know BS, and these people are making it up. I'm sure there are some people that have suffered from some of the effects of uh, perhaps some air issues on board, but it's such a small, a minor number of people compared to the thousands and thousands of flights and thousands, uh, tens of thousands of aircrew members. It's such a small percentage that you know, it's just hard for for us to kind of really, not that we don't take it seriously, but
0: I don't know.
2: I think, too, a lot of the stories that we end up reading about these types of things are very sensational, too, the way they're covered in the media. And, you know, yes, Frank is talking about an issue that's probably an ongoing thing that's being looked at by, you know, various airline maintenance and trying to be addressed on a regular basis so that these don't become problems. But these stories we hear about in the media are kind of sensational things with strange smells and all kinds of weird complaints that don't kind of add up. And I think that's where we sometimes are a little more skeptical about what's going on. So not that we're not taking things seriously here, but yeah, sometimes it's between
4: the lines a little bit. Yeah, it's in a different class to chemtrails. Um, but uh, not everyone is susceptible to the toxic effects of uh, oil escaping into the cabin. And uh, there are very few examples of it. Uh, um, certainly the engine manufacturers have taken on board and what used to be a fairly common occurrence uh, on my aircraft uh, is now extremely rare. So, not only did we, uh, even when it happened, not have um, many or even any people that I know of who, that who were affected. Uh, it's now almost unheard of. It, on my fleet, I, I,
3: I thought we, I thought we got the smoking in the cabin back when we did away with the smoking in the cabin.
4: Yeah, now those are the days you would get a problem when
3: everyone yeah. everybody in board. the back was lighting up and you know yeah, yeah. having you know, matches and and and, and smoking the you back do, and you do a walk
4: around, and the belly of the aircraft would be tacky brown with all the nicotine and tar that was coming out of the air conditioning system.
3: Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, let's let's face it—the the real big safety or, or 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 concern that I think most people overlook is the fact that you're much higher up in the atmosphere and you're much closer to the sun and your exposure to res- to radiation, radiation. Is, high, is much higher than any amount of air that you're going to have to worry about breathing in. Yep. So if, if you spend a lot of time at altitude, uh, like we as pilots do, uh, you know, our, ex- our we are actually con- considered radiation hazard workers. We don't wear the little tag that tells us what our exposure is. I do. But, you know, sorry <laughs> you do i know you do because you're around it all the time but yeah. you know we're, we're getting exposed to direct uh, you know gamma and, and whatever other rays they call it um all the time up at altitude and, and so on to passengers in the cab in the cabin so to me that's a much greater danger than worrying about uh, you know the occasional odor in the air which it's going to happen even when you get in your own car you're going to get that you know you get behind a uh, and you know an old uh, beater that somebody doesn't maintain, and next thing you know they go to accelerate from the light in front of you and there's a big black smoke cloud that you're going to drive your vehicle through uh you know most vehicles don't have a filtration air filtration, and guess what you're getting more exposure to that oil than you ever will in an airplane so i I think it's i think it's it, it's not malarkey. i wouldn't say it's malarkey. it's there it's definitely possible for somebody to be susceptible to it. However, I, I don't think the exposure is nearly as great as the other things I mentioned.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, you know Dana and I fly at lower altitudes in general than Captain Nick does, and we fly at lower latitudes than Captain Nick does. So the kind of flying that you're doing, Captain Nick, uh, you, I'm sure you're aware of, is the kind of uh, flying that really exposes you to a very, very high. Uh, level of uh, radiation
3: and ozone. And, you, know, you go yeah. further north, north latitudes, you, you get the ozone too,
4: right? Yeah, absolutely so, uh, right, Jeff. In fact, uh, we're classed as uh, radiation workers. We have uh, radiation sensors on the aircraft to measure the average radiation that uh, we're exposed to, and that is then uh, measured against our roster so that we can get an uh, an accurate uh, number of rads that we've received in uh, a, a period. And uh, our rosters are even monitored to ensure that uh, we don't fly in northern latitudes uh, so often that we start receiving an excessive dose so do you so, ever do you have
1: access to those uh, those figures those numbers yes I do
4: I can go on the website I can wow. go on the website and see what my personal uh, estimated it's not an actual because mm-hmm. They don't have radiation monitors on every aircraft, so they just take an average.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, and, um, for example, the Japanese crews who used to do nothing but go from London to Tokyo, uh, where well, they discovered when their levels got too high, they would have to then give them uh, lower-latitude flights in between those Japanese flights to try and uh, keep their radiation levels to down to a sensible um,
1: amount. Wow, that's a downer. Okay. Yeah, so again, I think Frank, uh, we we made it clear uh, we we take them seriously, but we just think that maybe some people are more sensitive than others, and uh, we're also using our own anecdotal experience. And I don't know anybody who has ever had a situation, you know, of of a uh, an aerotoxic event, and uh, I don't think any of us have uh, had that. Of experience or know anybody that's had that experience. So I guess, you know, it's we're just using anecdotal evidence to kind of think, well, maybe it's not as big of a deal as some people make it to be.
0: But yeah, figure. and I think
2: certainly, you know, down the road or in the past, if there's been instances or if there will be instances in the future where there is found to be either maintenance problems or something that comes out that is causing actual harm and damage, those are things we take very seriously and, yeah. you know, would report.
3: On seriously as well, so right. And who, and who knows what radio waves are doing to us? We're completely surrounded by them oh, all wow. the time now. So, <laughs> the spectrum you know, of things. We, we, we get, we're
2: out speaking, tin, we, get out your tin. Get tinfoil hat. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's, it. it's
3: amazing. We we could sit here and and you know every other day the government's coming out with well, this is bad for you. This research paper. This is bad for you. This is good for you. Drink more coffee. Uh, eat less fat. Eat more fat. You know, listen. The end of the end of the day is is if you personally don't want to be exposed to it, make sure you don't get exposed to it. End of conversation. I I really think, you know, it's an individual individual choice. Uh, You want to get on an airplane? You you know, there's a chance you get exposed to that. There's a chance, you know, you go take a shower in the morning that you you could slip and fall and, and break your neck. It's a far greater chance you're going to do that than ever getting hurt on an airplane. So that's why I don't take showers. Oh, um, we know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just it. <kidding.
1: laughs> oh, wait a minute! That's not that's not true. Well, you guys are hurting my
4: feelings. But on the other hand, obviously the engine manufacturers are taking it seriously because that's where the source of the problem is, and uh, they are you know looking to make the engines as uh, leak free as possible. So they're not ignoring it, and neither are we. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the future, so so in the future, the uh, the number of occurrences will reduce almost, I suspect, until they're uh, down to a completely insignificant number. Yeah,
1: And I'm hoping that uh, over time with the number of uh, bin liners, excuse me, 787 Dreamliners out there with uh, systems that don't use bleed air uh, will have some data that they compare to, uh, can compare to the traditional type of uh, pressurization setups that we have in, you know, using bleed air in uh, traditional airplanes and, and kind of be able to compare the two and see if there's any significant uh, statistical difference. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, I flew over on a bin liner and I didn't notice uh, any difference at all, but
1: there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. This is from Robert. He says, Reminds me of one time I was in Florida years ago, had to stop in Macon for gas on the way home from New Orleans. And some folks were hinting a mutiny to bail off the plane there, too. And so he sends us a link to an article regarding an Indian Navy officer was on a flight. And now, are you familiar with this uh, term called hidden cities, hidden city fairs? Where people can, uh, nope. a lot of times you'll fly from one from A to B, but or let's say A to C, and you'll uh, go from A to B first and then B to C, and the ticket from A to B to C is cheaper than the nonstop from A to C. Hope that makes sense. We're using right. trigonometry here. Um, don't worry, we're not going to do the Sokotoa thing. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, what people have been doing, and some successfully is buying a ticket from A to B and then B to C, but then not going all the way to C and just getting off at B, and they're saving like a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. heck, why not? (laughs) I mean, I understand that. Uh, And, of course, they don't check their bags because if they do check their bags, then they're not going to be able to retrieve them in that middle city, that middle stop of that hidden city. And apparently that's what this guy was doing in India, Uh, an Indian naval officer. Navy officer allegedly warned the airline well wait, let me read this here, the better mm. setup here. Um, he was uh, warned, well excuse me, he tried to get off at the uh, the middle city, the hidden city, and they wouldn't let him get off the airplane and they said permission to de you know I meant to look that up. is deboard really a, a word that disembark. S- disembark Disembark or deplane? I've heard, yeah. but deboard I'm going to look it up right now. Cause it makes me just like your, your grammar. Uh, yeah. Sense is just, well, yeah, mm-hmm. your dictionary.com. com vote, board. It's a verb, third person, singular, simple, present D boards, simple past pre- to exit a form of transportation, such as a boat, ship, airplane, trolley, streetcar, or spaceship. I Good guess goal. it's a real word.
3: And Dang it. Know. Wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, now I have been, I corrected. Say, wow. Yeah. Anyway, he, uh, he was he wanted to get off the airplane they said nope well, we're not going to let you deboard and he said well I have a bomb <laughs> he's carrying a bomb on board good answer yeah that's never a good answer when you're traveling no. on airlines
3: no
0: and uh,
1: so he was denied permission to deboard and the officer had a tiff with the airline staff when the flight touched down at Jodhpur. He told them he wanted to deboard de- and threatened he was carrying a bomb. The crew stopped him from disembarking. Passenger has been handed over to local police, said the Central Industrial Security Force officer. The bomb hoax delayed the flight by three hours. So he's being held. You know, that probably didn't do a lot for his career.
2: Right. A Navy <laughs> officer? Are you yeah. kidding me?
3: And he got de bored in the city he wanted to.
2: He did ultimately, but not to the, not to
3: the,
0: uh, final. I don't think
4: think (laughs) not at all in the city. I don't
1: think his hotel accommodation (laughs) would be quite up to standard. It was different accommodations than he was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, wow. Thanks Robert for that. Leave it to Robert to kind of find those things. Okay. Um, let's continue on, try to knock out some more of these things before we end the show. Um, Oh, you know, was it a couple of episodes ago that uh, where you received? Excuse me the um, the feedback regarding transgender pilots.
2: Yes.
3: Yes.
1: Okay. Uh, Hi, APG crew. Nikki here. Just wanted to say hi. Give a little, maybe a long feedback on a listener message from episode two ninety nine. Okay, that's it. First I wanted to say that I understand where they are coming from. I'm also transgender, a student pilot and hold a class 1 medical. So there are many things to worry about but flying should not be one of them. The Now he says the F-A- FFA several places in here. Is there something called the FFA or does he mean the FAA? I
2: think he means Mickey, the F- F-A. he FAA. Okay.
1: I think he means FAA. That's what I thought too. Uh, the FAA has rules on how we handle hormones, surgeries, and other personal things, none of which is hard to follow. Nothing indicates that you can't do something or can't fly if you're transgender. Well, they do say if you can't fly during recovery, they do say you can't fly during recovery after surgery, but that's normal for all pilots, any kind of surgery. First, you speak with an FAA doctor about what you're doing. The FAA lays out what the doctor needs to ask and check off once the pilot starts to transition with various paperwork in hand. They just need to go to their local uh, FSDO, I think, uh, and fill out some official paperwork took me about 30 minutes and everyone there was really nice. Maybe there was an FSTO as well as their uh, flight standards. I think it's FSDO though, right?
2: FSDO. FISTO. FF- yeah, FSDO.
0: Okay.
1: At no point has anyone been mean or has said that I could not fly. In fact, Some airlines, like Acme, support the LGBT community and are well-known at LGBT events, so don't let fear stop you from pursuing your dream of flying. As far as passports go, the U.S. has rules for transgender people, too. I personally have traveled after my transition, and I've never had a problem. But if you feel that a country will lock you up or hurt you in some way, just tell the airline you work for that you feel unsafe flying there. There are a lot of other countries out there that would love to have your money. Finally, you can join the NGPA, that's NGPA.org, and find other pilots in your area who can help you. You only need to ask. Student pilot, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki, for uh, for, for listening to that feedback and uh, and reaching out. Uh, I can't remember exactly the name of the person a couple episodes ago. I was,
2: I was trying to think, too, and I don't remember, but just yeah. a quick correction. Nikki, pronoun she. Just Pardon me? Nikki uses the pronoun
1: she, so. Oh. Not he. Yeah. Okay. Where did I say? Did I say he? Just a Oh, I I I'm sorry. Did, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Nope, N-I-C-K-I. Big... Okay. Well, so I'm I'm uh I'm, I'm i have violated <laughs> a pronoun uh rule. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to. So she. Gotcha. <laughs> thank you. Um <laughs> and I was gonna quickly see if we could figure well, that's right. It doesn't matter. Um but uh, thank you for Coming to that person's aid and uh, uh, saying or, or uh, encouraging uh, the person to understand that uh, you shouldn't, you might have fears about certain things and people's reactions, but you don't need to worry about the flying thing. I guess that's my take from it.
2: Exactly. And, you know, I think Nikki makes a good point, you know, that and any medical issue really, you know, you can always go and talk with um, an aviation medical examiner and run the scenario by them and see what. You know, what they recommend, what they think, what your hurdles might be, so okay, I don't think that's ever a bad bad idea to do
7: exactly. We have some audio feedback from Chris. Hello, Captain Jeff. This is chris from uniform forty two I just want to call back in regards to your podcast of November seventeenth. I was listening to the discussion about the crash of the russian seven thirty seven and it brought me back to a uh, previous podcast of yours where you talked about Russian flight schools allowing students to essentially purchase their licenses. That is to say, buying their licenses without actually going through the flight training. And I'm wondering if that's a you no, know, I'm wondering what the chances are that that might have something to do with it. Whether they outright Ford stated said that they received training that they didn't, or perhaps they just, you know, uh, maybe they didn't quite actually get all the hours they should have. That seems to me to be a distinct possibility. And thank you very much for your continued podcast. Thank you very much to all of you. And, Kavu, uh, bye.
1: Okay. Um uh- Steph, U-42, you know where that is, don't you?
2: U-42, Utah?
1: Yeah, no. it is. It's the 42nd airport and it's South Valley Air, Regional Airport. South
2: Valley Regional in, in uh,
1: Salt Lake
0: Valley. Yep. West
1: Jordan, seven miles southwest of Salt Lake City. I know exactly where I it is. I figured you'd know where it is because so. <laughs> uh, you're from out that direction. Yeah, cool. Um, so what do you think about his... Um, his uh, thoughts regarding the the 737 and such?
4: Well, it's contentious, uh, very hard to prove, but I suspect some of us have similar misgivings of many countries and the standard of training. Um, I can only speak for my country and I know it's pretty rigorous and well-administrated. I think you'd need to, be a Russian who's gone through training and perhaps seen it or experienced it to make a proper comment but uh, so all we can do really is uh, is guess what's going on but um, I too am a bit concerned about the number of handling X um, problems there have been uh, I don't think the aircraft type matters too much um, although we know that there's quite a difference between the uh, some the instrumentation of a Russian aircraft and Western aircraft uh, that might give rise to confusion unless you're well familiar with uh, the differences. Uh, but uh, you know, it it sounds as if it might occur. Whether it does or not, I can't say.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of like with Nick. It it's uh, it, I can't put my finger on the airplane, um, although. I think we've discussed this before is the airbus is really designed more for uh, for ease of use seven three seven may not be as compatible um or it's well I, you know Nick hit it on the head' their instrumentation is different too so i can't maybe can't even say that the airbus would even be a better aircraft one um i think it comes down to possibly training but you know it, we don't really know um what their what their standards are and and how they train. So uh, it's, it's hard for us to comment on that one, I think.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your audio feedback, Chris. always appreciate it when uh, folks take the time to record something and we can hear your lovely voices. Uh, let's see this from Ralph. This is shocking. This is from dailymail.co.uk. Airline passenger discovers that the frame around his cabin window is loose. <laughs> Sorry. And they, had some, to laugh. <laughs> they had some pictures He's of it. Him. It is shocking, it's terrifying, it's horrifying. It
4: is. Look at that. Some coming away. all gonna get sucked yeah. out. It's, it's
3: it's gonna fall oh apart. No. Yeah.
1: Oh. So in the article you'll see the pictures that we we're to which we're referring and that we're so horrified about. The trim, the cabin trim around the window is uh, is not uh, intact, and uh, there's some gaps and everything else. But I mean, come on, people, really, uh, that's not part of the structural uh, part of the airplane and what's keeping the airplane pressurized. That's actually another window on the exterior of the airplane that is is doing all that work. Uh, the thing that you're looking at is just the uh, the trim, the plastic trim that kind of protects that. Real window that's on the uh, fuselage and actually keeping you alive.
3: You know, like if if you have a car and the headliner and the car is fallen down, it's falling what? down. It just means a piece of the interior is fallen down. It, yeah. It's not. It's not a big deal. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah the the roof isn't going to come caving in on you all of a sudden.
3: Oh, yeah. Good. It, it isn't. No. <gasps> it, it isn't.
1: Cause the headliner on my van is like hanging down. I'm thinking, Oh, uh, the roof's going to cave uh, in. <laughs> the
3: whole now, reason why I, that's the whole reason why I even mentioned that Jeff, because I <laughs> know <you>. that <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole, the whole van is going to come apart now just because the headliner is coming. <laughs> oh, down. I
0: can't, I
1: can't you tell know? you yeah. how relieved I am. Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> to be fair, the guy that,
4: uh, submitted the uh, video to the mail, said uh, it was a low-cost airline, $30. That's the whole airline? Wow. Um, the window was totally off its frame. I found it funny and recorded the video with myself. Oh, okay, so he wasn't that shocked. No, oh, I think it's the Daily Mail that are making a big thing. But, <laughs> well, that's unusual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we're starting to lose a bit of uh, interest this is in the a really pres-
2: prestigious... Uh-
4: <laughs> oh, yes, uh, journalism uh, yep, yep,
1: yes, yep. yes. Yep. <laughs> I uh, hear that's like one of the the top the, the top of the class, right? Daily Mail.
4: Oh. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, it's it's a classic tabloid.
1: Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, this is from Flyboy Ben Marling. Uh, let's see hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, the new Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph. And the rarely heard Miami Rick. As the summer season rolls around in New Zealand, summer, what? Oh, that's right. They're on the other side of the world. I had another three to four questions from my list. Okay, we'll try to knock out a couple of these at least. Captain Nick, I've heard recently that the A330 are being phased out of service and replaced by the A350 or and or, in your case, the bin liners.
4: Uh, not by the bin liners, uh, but they will be uh, complement the A350. So the A340s are being phased out and replaced by A350s. Uh, our new VLA, very large aircraft replacement, we're all delighted to see it coming on board in uh, 18 months to two years' time. Uh, the 330s we will keep, and they will work hand in hand with uh, the 350s and the Ben Liner doing uh, the 330s will obviously service the shorter, thinner routes and the 350s and the Ben Liner will do the longer fatter routes.
1: Ooh. Fatter. Yeah. Fatter. Um, Captain Dana, are you ready for your question? With the CRJ, I've heard recently that in a CRJ 700 has no, barely, any checked in baggage room. Is this true? Answer! Is he still there? I don't think so. Okay, Dana. Dana. We're, we're, Dana. We're, okay, I'm going to answer for him. Yes, it's true. They didn't design the airplane to to carry luggage; only
0: passengers.
1: <laughs> 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 it was it was an engineering error. Oh, dear. At Bombardier, that no. almost put them under. No, they, I think they I, couldn't. I, go ahead. They could. They couldn't afford the
4: uh, the boxes <laughs> that they stick in the ceiling. That's what it was.
1: Oh. Now I think Dana kind of uh, addressed this before uh, when they moved from the uh, the individual passenger weights, uh, that kind of <laughs> really had a big impact on certain aircraft such as the CRJ 700, 900 and 200, where you know, they went from 180 to 200 or whatever the figures were. And so that added another 20, 30 pounds to each passenger weight. And that essentially... <laughs> Uh, made it so that you could carry a a full load of passengers and really hardly any luggage or uh, kind of a a combination of passengers and luggage. But, you know, it is true that I've seen, um, you know, a lot of bags, suitcases and such uh, out on the ramp area and, you know, being left there and then put on a mainline airplane uh, to go another hour or two later to uh, the destination, which is not very efficient. And, uh, it doesn't make the passenger very happy, and, and I'm sure yeah. it can't be and good for the, the airline. I think
2: passengers don't actually know that in advance. Too. No,
1: they should. They're just
2: <laughs> going to get to their destination and go, "Um, my bag."
1: You know, they, we've done surveys stuff that show that passengers are usually pretty happy when they arrive at their destination and their bags are there as well.
0: What? No, Shocking. I'm
1: I'm not kidding you. We have actually some actual research survey. that we've done on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that
4: that fact should. Bring us above the 50% mark. What do you that reckon, should. Uh, I yeah. think so. I think okay, so. Yeah. yeah, I think
1: so. All right.
0: Yay. Yep, that's the 50% Yay. bell.
1: Oh,
4: awesome. Good facts.
1: <laughs> Dr. Steph, with you flying people who I find jump out of perfectly good aircraft, what altitude do they jump at?
2: So it depends. Um, some of it depends on the type of aircraft. So, you know, we were talking about the uh, short takeoff landing Pilatus earlier. We were talking and um, aircraft. Larger aircraft can get up to. Well, they'll, they'll drop their skydivers at about fourteen thousand feet. Um, so, twin otters and Cessna, caravans and. Um, sorry, dropped Uh-oh. my phone off
4: the. <laughs> <laughs> down. Incoming! Um, Don't jump, Steph. You're not wearing your parachute. <laughs> no,
2: no, no. It's ah, okay. I'm on the ground. I'm on the ground. Um,
1: practicing your
4: but, para- parachute
1: landing fall.
2: Good at that. Uh, yeah, So the Cessna Caravan, King Air, Twin Otter, CASA, uh, so the larger aircraft that carry um, quite a few jumpers generally have the capacity to get up to about, or, and the uh, turboprop prop uh, engines up to about 14,000 feet. Um, a lot of drop zones just use a Cessna 182 um, or similar. And they'll t- generally go to about 10,500 feet. Um, sometimes it depends on what the skydivers are trying to accomplish. Um, so for canopy training and things where they're not looking for free fall time, they'll just go to either 3,500 feet or 5,000 feet and just jump out of the aircraft and deploy their parachutes immediately to work on those types of things without having to spend all that time in freefall too. So,
1: so what would you say is like an average, you think, like most of the
2: time? Uh, it, it depends. It's either 14,000 feet, um, usually uh, mean sea level or 10,500 just depending on the size of the drop zone and what they're using for their aircraft so
4: i'm sorry did i misunderstand that it's either 14,000 feet mean sea level or what was the other one i mean if you jump no, or ten ten
2: thousand five hundred 10,500 feet oh,
4: 10, so, so, but if you jump out at mean sea level i mean doesn't that give you not, very quick on the <laughs> on the no i was just <laughs>
2: That's not yeah. above ground level. So you want to make sure that, you know, you know you're it depends on terrain and
1: excuse my ignorance. Now if you if you uh in the Death Valley and you jumped at mean sea level, yeah. you'd have a couple hundred feet to
4: Yeah, yeah. I way. was thinking of yeah, that uh, over the dead dead sea. There I was there thinking, go. Well, place. Perhaps they do parachute jumps over the dead sea.
1: Uh yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, no. perhaps there's a hole in the water somewhere.
0: Don't
3: be don't be scared, but I'm back.
1: Welcome back. Dana. Welcome back. Thank you. So we, we answered a question for you. You you didn't hear it. I believe, Um, Uh,
3: Captain Dana with a CRJ. I've heard recently that one.
1: Yes. And, uh, we basically said it was true that they designed it that way. Okay. Um, Uh, I disagree with you. No, no, no. We, 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 answered, I think we did a good (laughs) job of answering it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did an excellent job. Uh, uh, let's see Captain Jeff. Recently, I went to an Royal New Zealand air force base, uh, uh, base Woodburn they had a 727. Now, with your experience with the 72, they talked about a door in the tail which could be operated by a by a level, by some oh, I think it means lever, by some ground personnel. Is this true? Yes, it's true. They can operate it on the ground, and there is actually a door on the tail. It's the that's air stairs. And that's gonna uh, be
4: fifty-five percent now, Jeff.
1: Yeah, I know Wait, wait, hang on.
4: Well done. We had three in a row, yeah, that yep. were answered correctly. Yep. We're we're getting up there. It, it, how about Dana's? I mean, was, was uh, that-, that one's questionable?
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Wow, that was about. I think his was it, like 50 it's 50. like
2: Well, Dana didn't actually really answer it, so no. It
1: was- but we we don't want him to answer it because I like our answer better. Okay. <laughs> 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 anyway, yes, the air stairs door, uh, the 727 uh, and the um, uh, the DC-9, uh, the MD-80 series, MD-90 series, not the Boeing 717, which is not really a Boeing, uh, the MD-95, uh, they don't have air stairs, believe it or not. Um, and I think some other, the BA, uh, the Bach 111, did that have air stairs? Do you know, Nick? I know. not.
4: I believe it did. Yes, it did. I, whether you could open them in flight and jump off though, I don't know.
1: No, this is, but that's not what he's asking. He's asking people, the people on the ground can actually open it up. Oh, I'm guessing. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. That's what they do on uh, the mad dog. Uh, if we come in and they, of course they don't. In my experience lately they haven't been dropping the air stair doors very often anymore I think it has something to do with the the protocol now with uh, the way the cabin cleaners uh, you know, clean the clean the airplane but uh, the uh, and we' talked about it a few times on the show where the 727 it was a requirement to lower the air stair door before uh, depart uh, before um, boarding and and uh, deplaning or deboarding um, but uh, the uh, the mad dogs, uh, we don't have to. It's just a, an access or another means of uh, access and aggress.
3: Yeah, so. it's funny you mentioned that. I I haven't noticed that until you just mentioned it because I don't even pay attention. But yeah, most of the steer, air air is not down anymore.
1: Yeah, you do your walk around, and it's just uh, you know you're looking at the APU and the uh, and the uh, what do you call that uh, the strike the, the strike pad. I mean, or, pardon me.
3: Yeah, the, the tail tail, I mean, tail skid.
1: Yeah, the tail's good. Go ahead, Nick.
3: The tail's good. The yeah. acme
1: nut. Yeah. You looking at the acme nut? The acme nut. nut? Yeah, we. Uh, I usually stand if, on if the air stairs to look at the acme nut. That's the the best yeah. vantage
3: point. <laughs> no, if if Jeff's doing the walk around, it's definitely acme an acme <laughs> nut on the ramp. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's it.
1: All right, I'm just not fast enough on my finger here. <laughs> and the,
5: that's what she said.
1: Okay. <laughs> see, see what I did there. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see. Dun, 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 dun. We still have a few minutes. Um, any of these that you want to, uh, let's see Markson sent in a bunch of, um, no, not Markson. Somebody else sent in a bunch of questions. So, um, spend. Right. we have Steph here with us. We might as well take advantage of this one. Uh, Hi, guys. Some feedback from Denmark. I just noticed a rather old piece of news here, but I thought it might be of interest, especially to Dr. Steph and her fellow sufferers, i.e. those who jump out of perfectly functional airplanes. They must be afraid of the landing? Last year in May, a parachute jumper was caught in a static line from one of the preceding jumpers as he was exiting the aircraft. He was caught below the plane and was, of course, the last jumper in the plane. The pilot was unable to free him and get him in, and... In the end, the plane landed at a, as slow a speed as possible on a foam-covered runway that emergency service had laid out so that the poor man could get as little runway rash as possible. He got away f- with a few light scrapes. The story had a happy ending, and the pilot and whoever got the idea to foam the runway both deserve all kinds of praise. Some weeks ago, oh boy, havarico Mission in other words, the Accident Investigation Board in Denmark, published its report on the accident. It seems that the incident accident had its root cause in the fact that there was no established procedures or rules for stowing static lines between jumps, and that a major contributing factor or contributing cause was that the knife that was carried on the plane could not cut the line once it had been twisted and put under tension. Rules for the stowage of static lines are being worked out, as is a better tool to cut the lines in case of an accident. I know that Dr. Steph must be a must be long past the point where she bothers with static lines anymore, but I was wondering one thing. When jumpers using static lines, or are using static lines, it was my belief that they are still doing training jumps, and that there would be an instructor on the plane to see them off. Am I wrong? Or could an instructor in fact also be jumping and thus have been turned into the dangling man? thanks for some great and insightful podcasts. I discovered this podcast last fall and am now current from episode 1 to 299 in little over a year. Wow. There is probably a diagnosis in there somewhere. yeah, I think it might be
0: news
1: APG syndrome APG syndrome says apart from the fact that i have way too much time on my hands yes congratulations on episode 300 (coughs) i'm looking forward to it being published that's published actually finally that was fend in denmark and so what steph uh the static lines is that just something that new parachute jump jumpers use or do uh, i don't know i'm not sure exactly how that works
2: so disclaimer right off the bat, if I can get my microphone to unmute here, um, I actually have zero experience with static line jumping. So I I think in a lot of cases it is for student training. I know that military training is used frequently. Um, I don't know a lot of the procedures that go along with it in terms of stowing the static lines. Um, for people who are wondering what we're talking about in terms of static line jumping, that's basically where um, the... Skydiver, the parachutist, is leaving the aircraft with a static line attached to one end of the aircraft, and it at the other end is attached to where the um, skydivers. Canopy, their parachute, it's attached to the the bag that it's packed into. We call that the deployment bag. So as they jump out of the aircraft, the static line becomes taut. It pulls the deployment bag out of the container, which is what we would do basically by um, we have a little pilot chute. If you're not doing a static line jump that's within your container, you remove the pilot chute that catches into the wind that removes the deployment bag from the container and it opens the canopy that way. So this is just an alternate way to uh, basically get the canopy out of the container that is packed into. Um, I'm sure that we have some listeners out there who have more experience with static line. Um, you know, His specific question was, is this mostly students? Um, I'm trying to think if I know other reasons why they would. Um, I, like I said, I think the only other thing that comes to mind is really military, jumping in military procedures. Because basically in those cases, you're going to be going from lower altitudes. You're going to want your parachute to deploy quickly. And it might make sense in that case to get people out of the plane quickly as possible to use static lines. Um, it used to be used more for training jumps, as far as I know. Um, at least where I do all of my skydiving, where I've trained in the past, the, the several drop zones I've been to, it's it's not done that way. Um, it's done with a course called Accelerated Freefall um, or Accel- Accelerated Free Fall Progression, depending on where you are. And it basically takes you through a whole course of, uh, you have a whole day worth of training with instructors, to learn all of your basic emergency procedures, what you're going to be doing to go through your dive flow and pattern. But then when you actually go to do your very first jump, you're doing it with um, two very experienced instructors who are going to jump with you to make sure that you actually do the things that you're supposed to be doing and that you deploy your own parachute when it's time to, to do so. So. Yeah, sorry, Sven. I don't have a lot of um, experience with, or any experience actually with with static lines. I'm sorry, that's not as helpful as you were probably
1: hoping for. But Steph, do you do you like have? Uh, is it still called a rip cord, like the thing you pull? No. Oh, see, because <laughs> yeah. you called it like some kind of a deployment module or something like. that. I'm thinking, is she talking about the rip cord? Because I'm sure that the static line is connected to the rip cord. Uh,
2: not in the case of the you know, the canopy and the container system. We need to have values.
1: rip cords. Bring yeah. back the rip yeah. cords.
2: Yeah. I mean, you, do have, right, you so, do have handles for your emergency procedures, but
1: no one talks about them being a, a
3: ripcord. You so. know, just just like with everything else, every, you know, things progress through time. When I was back, when I was flying parachute jumpers back in the early 2000s, static lines were quite common. And yeah, it, it was designed specifically for uh, either entry level or students uh, student learning how to uh, at least fall under, under canopy. Uh, the one jump that I did is actually was a static line. Uh, that is, is, you know, as soon as it came out of the airplane, of course, my chute went full deploy. And the next thing I know, I had the strap that's supposed to be across my chest right up against my nose. Um, so it it was quite an interesting experience, but you know, they used to do the first several jumps with the, at least the the school that I worked up at in, in Rome, Georgia, would be the first several jumps would be with a static line and then after the you know, instructor would, uh, you know, depart um, shortly after and make sure that everything was uh, good uh, in the airplane uh, with the student, would then descend down with the student, make sure they're doing okay, landing okay, having an instructor on the ground, make sure they're making the approach okay. Uh, and then, then the next progression would be to some, something what Dr. Steph is talking about. We jump with an instructor or two. And uh, you know now you're doing your own deployment, and uh, you know going to the ground. So it was the beginning stages of of learning how to parachute, and from the sounds of it, it's it, it's more of an old school uh, way of teaching it, or maybe just isolated to specific schools. Yeah, uh, or maybe it's more common in uh,
1: in European countries. Yeah, sure. it, they might I have more restrictions as far as how the, how high they can go and that kind of thing. Sure. Um. Oh, a P.S. from Sven. This is completely another thing, but a few months ago I was doing a hike, and my GPS track led me down a path that was a little steep for me. I'm somewhat challenged, especially as regards my sense of balance, after suffering a brain injury some years ago. Anyway, I was standing at the top of this rather sleep, steep slope, backpack strapped on and considering my options. At that moment, a melody started in my head, and I decided that... You can I never know. I knew that that would be applied to some other situation like being on a uh, on a trail and deciding to go around instead of going down the rather steep slope. So he said, I could always go around if it didn't feel right coming down. He says, talk about syndrome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Sven. You have it pretty bad. Hey, before we move on, um, I think another um, person who has some skydiving experience has joined us and might be able to lend some additional information to okay. that last oh, yeah. question possibly
1: oh, I, I don't know fred hey fred didn't hey see guys in there.
6: i snuck in
1: ah how's
6: it going i have the i have the keys to the front door so i could sneak in ah, the door. okay
2: he didn't have to get up to answer the door this time he wasn't in-
6: i told nick you know just don't answer the door if it's my uh, my girlfriend's husband otherwise you're good
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you hear the question about the uh, static lines
6: I did. Um, I don't know. I'm with Steph. I don't think in recreational skydiving, there's not much uh, static line usage at all. Um, I, quite frankly, I've never seen it. I don't think we have the airplanes equipped for it either.
2: Yeah. I mean, the only people I hear talking about it are, um, have been in the sport for a very long time. So,
3: yeah. Yeah. Going back to what I said, it's a long time ago. We're talking all many years.
6: It's a long time ago. Age. Yeah, exactly. Those are, those are the same people that remember, like, oh, God, the days before ZPF, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
1: Steph, could you uh, translate what Dana just said? uh It's the old timers. Okay. <laughs> people have
2: been
0: in the sport for.
1: Ah, I suppose <laughs> a that means
4: that guys like me who uh, used to scuba dive with air, we're pretty old school now, we? are we?
3: You- yes, you are actually. Yeah, yeah, nitrox. Yeah, what do they use now? No, no, no do
4: with just plain air anymore, do they? No.
3: Well, no, it's still quite readily available. We a lot of people are too too uh, frugal. Yeah, it's free. I want to use important <laughs> but, bit. Well, it is free, but you know, I tell you what, it's it's a lot better to be diving on nitrox, thirty two percent. Yeah, when you come back up, you don't feel nearly fatigued, and it's a lot safer. So, that's it. I guess that's my own talk show. I could go into a, and do my own podcast on diving, couldn't I? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, no, thank you. I'm not spinning it off. It's way too much work. <laughs> Jeff, you make it look way too easy.
1: No,
4: I don't
3: think I do, actually. Uh, Leighton well, yeah. Street in the chat room says, Night Trucks is for
4: sissies. So I don't know about that. Oh, has, boy. Has, has,
6: Lane, might,
0: has Lane, Lane seen me?
1: <laughs> Dana ain't
3: no sissy, man. I'm no sissy. Yeah.
1: Hey, you know what? I know we're kind of going long. We're right at about three hours, but uh, what the heck? I'm going to do it anyway. Markson writes in and he just wrote in very recently. My name is Markson, but I want to make sure we answer this question. And because we have a larger panel than normal, maybe we'll get give him a good answer. I don't really know what the answer is here. My name is Markson. Let me start by saying, I appreciate all you all do to inform, educate and entertain us. Your audience started listening to aviation podcasts and about about two years ago, but found ABG around October of last year. Have uh, since then been caught With the ABG syndrome, honestly, there's no cure for it. (laughs) Would be honored to hear the crew's thoughts on my subject. I'm 28 years old. I'm a migrant from Africa. I've been in the U.S. for two years and six months. Dreamt of becoming a pilot as long as I can remember. Being an African, there's uh, really little information on how to pursue this career. Long story short, when I moved to the U.S., I decided to uh, decided, despite my advanced age. (laughs) Advanced age? You're 30 years younger than I am. (laughs) Ouch. Oh boy. Yeah. He's that hurts. Old man. Uh, considering the retirement age in the industry of 65. Okay. You put a little caveat in there. I uh, would still presume my dream. Yeah. If you've been listening, uh, Markson, um, 28 is young. Yeah. Plenty of time. Anyway. Um, so, uh, working hard as a certified medication technician and a nursing assistant saving up and with information from podcasts like APG I started flight training in March 2017 and on August 24th 2017 I passed my private pilot checkride. Yay Maxon congratulations. And currently working on both instruments and commercial with the same part 141 school here in Baltimore. I uh, had a uh, that he got his uh, private pilot's certificate with. I'm still paying out of pocket, hoping I can get it all done with no debt to the uh, commercial pilot license. So I saw something somewhere about a pilot being rejected a few years ago for having a misdemeanor on his record for shoplifting that got me thinking hard and honestly kind of discouraging when I read articles about the subject. In October 2016, I was charged for driving without a license. Technically, I had a license, a license for my country and an international driver's license, but was told by the police officer that they were not valid licenses in the state of Maryland. He said, I learned my lesson, went to court and the judge put me on a six months probation before judgment, PBA, PBJ. Well, I thought that was peanut butter and jelly. No, I guess it's something else in the legal field, uh, which I've done and gotten my driver's license from the MVA here. I consulted a lawyer who said it can get expunged after three years. That will be October of 2019. With this in my record and considering that I might get done with my ratings to commercial in less than a year if all goes well money-wise, will I still be able to have a job starting out for time building like banner towing, jump pilot, flight instructing, if I go that route? Furthermore, will I be able to get an ATP license in the future and will this hinder me in any way when I start applying for the regionals and eventually the majors? Or... Is there any regulation or regulations that state that having misdemeanors or felonies will prevent prospective aviators from being hired? Can I have the reference, please, if there is any such regulation? I don't want to spend all this money and can't use, and then can't use my ratings. I currently hold a bachelor's degree in management and a first-class medical certificate from the FAA. I apologize for the lengthy email. Accept in advance my appreciation for your response and wish you all endless visibility and tailwinds up there in class alpha airspace regards markson so i am not sure about this um
4: i've got an expert beside me who uh, obviously deals a lot with this
0: uh, i was
1: gonna with, say yes with misdemeanors
0: more... <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We knew he was a shady shady character always
4: <laughs> well look at him he's dressed in black and he hasn't shaved yeah Hey, it's Friday.
6: Uh, no, this is more, more <laughs> binding legal advice from uh, from the FAA. Um, I can't speak specifically to this, but you know, with all of this stuff, it, it usually never is one thing. You know, if if, if the FAA issues you a, a pilot certificate, then that pilot certificate and those ratings are valid. Whether somebody will consider your previous history for employment is completely up to them. Uh, you know, normally, if you're a, a highly qualified candidate, if uh, if it's a position that's not too too competitive. And they may or may not look at the, I look at those things, and so I, I, it's not a, probably not a, a legal impediment to holding a certificate, um, but it could, be, uh, it could be used by an employer, for example, if they don't like you completely, or if they have to make a, a very difficult selection. Well, I think
2: it's, uh, it's,
3: it's, 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 can, can I go here, Dr. Seth? Yeah. 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 Please go ahead. It, it, it's going to come down to one very basic thing. And that is, can you pass a background check? And also, uh, you know, associated with, if you're going to work for nearline, you're going to have to be cleared by the TSA. So it, it, felony absolutely completely eliminates you from being able to be in a secure area. Um, however, misdemeanor, I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I kind of think I agree with Fred. It's going to be up to the employer. Uh, I don't think a misdemeanor would eliminate you from uh, passing a background check or in or security clearance to uh, go in with the uh, deal with the TSA or the F.A. Uh, not the F.A. But the FBI. Yeah. With the, uh, that's what they do. And he's gone.
0: Well, and I was just going to add he's still there. Oh, still there. Sorry.
1: That's stuff.
2: Okay. So I was just going to add that. Uh, this is one of those things too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm dead kidding. yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you will be soon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So
2: Dana, we love you, man. I'm sorry. We just can't hear. It. it sounds like you've stopped talking, but I think you perhaps haven't. So I apologize for talking over you. Um, uh
3: yeah can you hear me yeah we can hear you now you can hear me now when you you get when you get when you get the voice recording you can meld it in okay you'll have the answer then yeah
1: let's let's stop talking it's gonna be too much work for me
2: (laughs) so just just real quickly one thing i wanted. to
1: good night no 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 stick around for the party
2: All right. So one thing I just wanted to add real quickly for Marks, and this is one of those things, and um, you know, Fred and Dana have certainly already addressed this, but usually when there's something like this where it's not a, a absolute uh, contradiction or contradiction to uh, getting an employ- a, a offer of employment, they will ask for... Um, the description of what it was and your explanation of what happened. So if you can explain it in a very rational way with objective facts and what exactly happened and, you know, the outcome of all of that, that probably speaks very highly to your professionalism as well. And, um, you know, I'm with everyone else. I don't know what the answer is to this. I don't, um, Ooh. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, I can't see I, I,
2: I can't see that this would be something that would prevent you from getting a job. I mean, it's no. just not the type of thing where, you know, it, it's uh, I, I would just be very surprised. So I guess never say never, but I would be very surprised. Yeah.
1: And that's And as you say, it was just a technicality. I mean, you had you had a license from your country and an and an international driver's license. Uh, and, you know, of course, maybe, you know, they they said, well, you should have known that if you're driving in Maryland, you should have a Maryland state driver's license. But, I mean, I, you know, as Steph just eloquently said, you know, if you can kind of state your case and, and convincingly explain that it was just all a misunderstanding and, uh, you know, it wasn't, it just doesn't seem like a, a very serious thing to me. But of course, the worst thing you could do is not mention it. Correct. And then let them because discover because things it. <laughs> can be found out. Yes. And if you didn't
2: mention it, then it's gonna that that does not look good at all. So all right. be very upfront about it. And you know, there's probably ways to kind of find out some of this information in advance. You know, if you're if there's specific companies that you're thinking about working for, you know, you could consider getting in touch with them in advance, or you could, you know, get in touch with people who work for them and find out what that hiring pl- process was like if they remembered answering any questions like that, um, just to get an idea or a background of what you might. Uh, be getting yourself into. So.
6: Exactly. It might be something also that, uh, on P prune might be able to help you. I'm sure there's some guys on there that'll pipe up if, if this is something that yeah. they've, if they've, they've faced and, and had to clear up somehow. Okay. And
1: that's P P R U N E has something to do with prunes and how they make you regular.
4: <laughs> no, it's uh, the Professional Pilot Rumor Network was how it started. Oh, so. yes, that's right. And it's com. So uh, it's a great source of uh, aviation uh, knowledge, uh, albeit that uh, there are an awful lot of uh, – um, reporters uh and news hunters hanging around in there looking for stories to stick on the daily mail
1: so just be a little cautious but i think it is worth stating that they're way above the 50 percent threshold so uh probably yeah yeah. probably much higher than us yes (laughs) okay um hey fred before we go uh glad to see that you were able to make it um thank you for uh allowing nick to uh Broadcast from your home studio.
6: My, pla- I was actually outside for the whole show, just watching on my phone. Oh, last question. Oh, was that
1: me. we we kept hearing like banging on the uh, wall from on, on the outside. Was that you, <laughs> <laughs> Nick? Come on! I can't believe you locked him out. Anyway, yeah,
4: it wasn't it wasn't on purpose. I just don't know how to use these American locks.
1: <laughs> so uh, it was great seeing Fred. Fred was uh, uh, present at the uh, 300th episode. Of course, if you've uh, listened and watched the. 300th episode and uh, some of our live streaming. uh, uh, He was uh, there in a big way. Uh, If you watched the live stream, the the other live stream that we were doing where we were outside and Fred was uh, exhibiting all of his uh, FPV drone flying skills, I think you would be duly impressed. Um, I'm
2: especially impressed because he let me fly them and I did not do a very good job.
1: I didn't even get a chance to see him. Well, you were a little busy cooking and doing stuff like that. I didn't even get the
3: chance to see them. I'm so mad. <laughs> but next know. time, thanks. don't do hey. let that alone fly one. Let alone fly one. I haven't flown next one yet, so then. don't worry about it. Yeah.
2: Well, I did want to say, it's, it's, Thanks. A, thanks again to Fred because that was a lot of fun.
6: That yeah, was a lot of fun. It was, yeah. fun. It was a ton of fun, uh, guys. Next time, we'll get everybody up and we'll so get Fred to doesn't let me
1: fly up. his drones nor his airplanes. So yeah, <laughs> I haven't no. been able to touch anything,
6: <laughs> literally.
2: That's why it's <laughs> <She> said.
1: <laughs> I, I just can't believe Fred came, came
4: down on uh, one flight, slept on a sofa and went home on the two red eyes
6: in the road almost. So, yeah, that was remarkable. And went back with the same crew that brought me there. Wow. Which was funny. Yeah. I saw him at the airport in the morning. Hey, guys, what's up? What's up? <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. that That says a lot right there.
6: All right, but it was it was totally worth it. it. Was it was so much fun?
1: Yeah, we had a great time. Thanks again. Thanks
6: again. The food was I I, I just uh, was fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you. All right, with that, I think it's time for us to wrap it up for episode three hundred one, our first in uh, the next three hundred episodes.
3: <laughs> and hey, can, I, can yes. I shout out? To, and I and I feel so bad earlier when I, Tom Seagraves uh, he made some unbelievable Manhattan's. Um, and drove all the way in from uh, the Missouri area, as well as uh, some other people that brought some uh, adult beverages for us all to share. Wanted to give them a shout out as well. I've got that earlier uh, for uh, participating only by coming, but also bringing us beers and and uh, some uh, alcohol. And that's really what it's all about. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Except uh, for tonight. Yeah,
1: but Tom Tom drove all the way uh, ten hours from Columbia, Missouri. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we had a great time. And uh, if you haven't watched or listened or both to the uh, 300th episode, please do. Um, I think you'll get a kick out of it. And uh, let's see if you want to learn more about the show and the crew and the community, merchandise, coffee fund, and much, much more. Head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we have a couple of um, apps, whether you have an Android or an iOS device. Uh, the APG app or the Airline Pilot Guy app um, on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. It's free, it's ad-free, and it's a great way to keep track of uh, what we're doing here at the uh, APG. And uh, we also are out there present in the social media.
2: We are. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at APGCrew. You can go to Facebook, Facebook dot com slash airline pilot guy. So all kinds of good information there, and information about when the live shows will be happening there as well. Usually,
1: so yes. Well, yeah, we try <laughs>
2: sometimes. Fifty percent of the time. Yeah, at least fifty
1: percent of the time. And uh, we also are on Slack, and uh, we have somebody here to tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's
0: Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack.
1: Thank you, Hillel. And Hillel was going to make it, too. He was planning on flying down from Maryland. And uh, just circumstances uh, didn't allow that. And uh, we missed you. man. we really did. So uh, thanks for being there on every show to tell us about Slack. And uh, let's see, what else? Anything else before we sign off? I think that's pretty much it. That's good. Planning another show next week. Come heck or high water. So until then... Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody.
3: Bye, guys. Bye.
5: Good day.
7: A good, good pilot till I started APG. I open doors for little old ladies, I helped them to their seats.
5: Airline pilot
7: guy, I fly a red oh. Airline pilot guy, he can't land in heavy. No friends cause I'm always Flying, I just don't Have the time But I can land This old plane I can't land it just fine
5: Airline Not a guy I'm a fly Oh Airline I got guy He can't land In heavy fall.
1: airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of
0: the Airline Pilot Guy Podcast. It ain't boring, I ain't going.